Welcome to the All Things Nintendo podcast. I'm Brian Shea from Game Informer, and this is a weekly podcast to discuss all the biggest news and games from the world of Nintendo. We have a jam-packed episode this week. So jam-packed, I actually pushed a couple of topics off to next week. We'll get to that next time. But uh, this week, we finally got a first-party Nintendo Direct, but not the company-wide update we were hoping for. Instead, it was another single-game-focused Direct, this time looking in-depth at Splatoon 3. We will be dissecting that. Then in the main segment of the show, we're going to pay homage to one of the most beloved franchises in all of gaming, celebrating the 35th anniversary of the Street Fighter franchise. To do all of that and a little bit more, I have invited former Game Informer editor and MinMax contributor Suriel Vasquez on to make his first appearance on all things Nintendo. Suriel, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Brian? Doing great. It has been way too long since we've caught up. Uh, I think the last time we saw each other was in July of last year, so 2021. There was a yeah. Game Informer reunion picnic. Yeah, that was a, that was a great time. I really it really was. Feedback. Yeah, we all met up in a park here in the Twin Cities, and then uh, it was a really nice day. Saw people from you know way back before either of our times at Game Informer. People who kind of crossed over with our time, and uh, you know some current people. So it was. A really awesome get together, and I'm kind of bummed we haven't done one since. Yeah, we should t- we should definitely do one someday. Be, we should. Awesome. Uh, but for now, in case people who are listening to all things Nintendo are not familiar with you, we are going to get to know you the only way we know how here on All Things Nintendo, and that is a segment we call first Nintendo game, favorite Nintendo game. It is tradition for anybody making their debut on this show. So the first part of that question, Suriel, is what was the first Nintendo game that you played? Either the first one you played or the one that made you kind of fall in love with Nintendo as a company? Uh, I think the first Nintendo game that I really fell in love with was probably Super Mario Brothers 3. Okay. Um, we had a, like an NES for a while because I was I was born in '92, but I was I actually feel like I was kind of I staggered the generations a little bit. So when I was a kid, I would play with an NES, and then a couple years after that, we got a Super Nintendo. But um, but by that time, I'd like you know, but we had a, a Nintendo when everyone else had a Super Nintendo, um, and so that just meant that I played a lot of Super Mario Brothers three. Um, and so that that was the first game that felt like oh you're making like it didn't feel like a run based game, um, in that yeah you still if you died uh, too much you you'd get sent back but it felt like you were making progress through these levels in a way that felt permanent versus like something like an arcade game where okay well uh, if you die you have to start over or like if you lose at like Mortal Kombat or something you have to you have to do another run or insert another credit um, so it felt like the the first game that I was able to complete with my brothers. Um, and I think yeah, that, that that definitely started my kind of love affair with like, I like the Nintendo things because the Nintendo things feel like premium products versus everything else, which feels a little bit like more temporary, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. And Super Mario Brothers 3 was such a revolution back in the day, and it still like continues to influence game developers to this day. Like I was interviewing the Sonic Frontiers developer, like the, the creative director as a part of our cover story a couple months ago. And he was like, yeah, for like the open zone style that we're doing, we looked all the way back to like what Super Mario Brothers 3 did for like their hub world. And like we were like, all right, how do we make this like this type of situation more of like a playable type of deal? And it's wild that to hear like a developer of what is essentially like a modern open world game reference something like Super Mario Brothers 3 as like one of their main inspirations. And like you yeah. said, you beat that game as a kid because like that, that it, final it, it, world is hard. Yeah, it was definitely a thing where it was over the course of, uh, you know, 
several tries and uh, like uh, kind of pass the controller style with my brothers. Um, but yeah, they, that game was definitely tough. And I think I definitely, I think I, I might not have beaten it even until I got the GBA version because I definitely remember playing some of the later worlds of Mario Three, but I I can't say I remember actually beating it. So maybe I didn't, and I just played it on the on the GBA, and that's where I finished it. Now, does the GBA version have save files? I I I think maybe it has it because it has the thing that all the Game Boy Advance Nintendo game or um, Super Mario Brothers games do, where you can play one of two games. So I think they'd have to have some sort of like progress saving thing. But also, I when you take into account batteries on a handheld, yeah. like, I feel like they had to because that's a huge game changer right there. Is like being able to save your game when you're playing Mario Three because leaving your NES on for days on end was one surefire way to piss your parents off. Yeah, I also wonder if I I want to say might have had something that like some mid generation Game Boy Advance games had where you could sort of put the game to sleep where you could enable a feature in game instead of like. Because I think eventually you could just close something like the DS or something. But I think there was a certain a setting in certain games where you could go to the options menu and then, and then say just sleep, where it would basically sleep the game until you pressed a button combination. So I think maybe it had that as well. And oh, that okay. maybe was will let you continue on through multiple sessions. So my, my go-to for like a kind of remastered version of Super Mario Brothers 3 was always Mario All-Stars on SNES. Because I thought like that was like so cool that they had these old NES games now like remade basically for the SNES graphics and SNES physics and everything. But like, did you play the Mario All-Stars compilation? And like, how did that compare to the the Game Boy Advance version, if you recall? I I didn't play the All-Stars version until it came out on the Wii. Uh, (laughs) But I remember someone, I think maybe one of my cousins had it and I saw the remastered graphics. I, I remember not liking the remastered graphics for one. Uh, so I ended up not getting it, but like I remember playing the updated version of three for a little while, and I, I never really invested too much in it. But um, I think the original graphical style of three is definitely uh, something special. It's more distinct for sure. Yeah. Like it sticks out a whole lot more than like kind. Of, I, I will say that as much as I enjoy the the quote unquote better graphics of Mario All Stars on SNES, I feel like it was almost like watered down in a sense. Yeah, a little bit more. Like, I think they wanted to make the look of the games a little bit more cohesive. And I think that is kind of uh, reducing the appeal of, like, the Mario series early on, where it just, like, every game looked weird in a different way. Because, you know, yeah. Mario 1 was, it's uh, you know, was obviously a thing. And then Mario 2 was so aesthetically different. And then it, it, we didn't know the history of why, why it was so weird. Um, but then shifting from that and then to 3, like, it seemed like, oh, it, they're, like, reinventing the art style of this series with every entry and then like super mario world you know basically was a step up but also like we're going to change the aesthetics of this uh again so like the like seeing them all look kind of similar definitely felt like oh they're i hope this isn't like what they end up doing going forward and then when then when they ended up doing is not making 2d games for a while yeah (laughs) i mean we didn't get another 2d game and i I guess a a real 2d game not like a remake or anything until new super mario brothers on ds yeah i think i i I forget when mario land came out but it definitely i remember someone saying that like i don't know if it was a nintendo power or i just overheard it where they were like they were saying that wario was holding the torch for the 2d mario series because of those wario land games 
Huh. And I definitely thought about it like, oh, yeah, Mario's in the 3D games because he's like the main. And like this was back when I was young enough to say like to pretend that Mario characters were real. Like, oh, yeah, Mario is Mario is too good for the for the 2D games. And they're like pigeonholing Wario as the as the 2D platformer character until they gave him WarioWare. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit later. Not Mario and Wario specifically, but kind of like the 3D craze and how it affected these traditionally 2D franchises in the main segment. But Suriel, that leads us into the second part of this question. What is your favorite Nintendo game of all time? My favorite Nintendo game of all time? I, I, I think it... A lot of it is nostalgia, but I think it's probably uh, Ocarina of Time. Uh, I, think, I think that game... Uh, even more so than Mario 3. I think Mario 3 was the game where that made me pay attention to like, oh, companies make these games and they have like, they all have a unique flavor, right? Like something, so like something like uh, Mega Man and Capcom were a different flavor than something like Mario. But I think Ocarina of Time was the first game that I just completely lost myself in and just like Mm -hmm. thought like, oh, they made a whole world out of it. Like it looks real and, and, you know, uh, and you have things everywhere and it just feels like you're in an actual place. So I think it might still hold like the strongest place in my heart, even though I know that there are probably better Nintendo games. It's, it's the one I think that is dearest to me. It's so good. And I've said it many times on this show that it was my favorite game of all time for about 20 years until breath of the wild dethroned it. And like, it's just, it, it was one of those games that just blew my mind. I had no idea what I was even taking in at the time i was just like oh my god this is unlike anything i'd ever seen before is this like kind of like the future that games are going and i had no idea it was around every single corner and i thought for the longest time i was never going to feel that feeling again because it's like all right i've played gta i've played red dead played all these huge open world games i understand like this is how open worlds exist in gaming today i'm never going to be surprised in the way that ocarina of time uh, which wasn't really a true open world game it was just a giant hub area that you could go and like, all right, I'm going to go to Kakariko village. I'm going to go to the castle town. I'm going to go to here, here, Zora's domain. So that's ultimately what Hyrule field served, but it kind of laid a, a somewhat of an early b- blueprint for those open world games that emerged like the next console generation. And yeah. And it, it was such a weird, it's such a weird dichotomy between now and then where it, like, they just came out with two games that were just exemplary of what they were doing. Whereas now I feel like anytime someone tries something new, because we are more aware of everything else going on, it just feels like, okay, they got this right, but you know, someone's going to come along and kind of improve on it. Whereas even at the time, it just felt so new that they were like, okay, no, they, they nailed it out of the gate with this. Like this is, this is completely playable and you can still go, go back. I feel to the original Ocarina of time and actually have a pretty good time with it. Like there's some inconveniences, like things like the swapping boots and stuff, but Mm -hmm. um, definitely feels like a totally playable game, you know? That's why I wish we would get the 3DS version ported to Switch because they fixed the swapping boots thing. Yeah, I like not to go on a, go off on too far of a tangent, but it f- almost feels like I'm kind of disappointed with a lot of recent remasters of games because there a lot of them are just shifting to doing the graphical update thing and not mm-hmm. giving you the original. So like uh, Live Alive or Live Alive or however you pronounce it, or, or something like. Um, uh, yeah, something like those games. It feels like okay, it's this new art style is really cool. Um, but I would have liked to play kind of the original game on its original hardware, and I feel like we're not getting a lot of remakes that do that. 
where there's like here's like our new improved version and then here's also the retro version which i think the the halo remaster for one i think really nailed of letting you kind of swap between those art styles oh yeah uh, but I, I, and that is the reason that like I think if they were to port that 3DS version, I would have also liked them to have the original. Like here's the original models, and then you can also swap to the 3DS version. But then mm. I think that's kind of a a larger um, that presents probably a larger problem because I don't think it's one to one in the the, the Grezzo, I think is the company that developed them those yeah. remakes. Um, but yeah, definitely would love to see that because I think that game also had the Master Quest stuff, which in in the U.S. was only like if you pre-ordered uh, Wind Waker, did you get the Master Quest on GameCube, or if you went on eBay years later and bought it and broke the bank because those discs <laughs> skyrocketed in value. I still have mine. I have the uh, the one that you got from like a Nintendo Power subscription. It was like the Legend of Zelda uh, that, collection. I think- I think that came. That might have been the one that came with like a silver GameCube. I think you bought a bundle. I think it was like you bought a GameCube, and then it came with those discs as like a special bonus. Oh, okay. I'd that or a Nintendo Power thing. I, I definitely then, remember getting stuff from Nintendo Power. Yeah, so I have both of like the collectible Zelda compilation GameCube discs. One is just like Ocarina of Time and Master Quest, and the other one is like all of the Zelda games that had been released on console to that point, which was yeah, pretty awesome. A thing that we probably will never see again from that company. I don't think they will ever say like uh, the, the dream thing would be to, for them to release like, here's every, here's like the Zelda anniversary collection, right? They're never going to do that. They're always going to like release them on either like some service, like they do the first two, or they're just going to say, here's a $60 version of a link to the past again. Cause <laughs> you, you'll buy it. Uh, or like basically any other Zelda, like if they ever release Minish Cap again, that's going to be like a $40 remaster and not like it's just it's just part of a bundle with like the Oracle games and Link to, and Link's Awakening and everything else, right? Although the dream is they do the Nintendo Switch online. They already have SNES, NES, Genesis and N64. What if they just add a Game Boy and Game Boy Advance collection and then slowly drip feed out Metroid and Zelda games from those those handhelds? Yeah, but like yeah, totally. Like like uh, although at this point it's like, oh, we're adding GBA games and they'll release like one game everyone likes and then like a bunch of weird like offshoot games that like I guess I guess people would be like I guess this is good <laughs> we didn't necessarily ask for this We're like where's Metroid Fusion meanwhile here's like you know the the Animal Crossing card reader app or whatever they had where it's here's like Tony oh, Hawk's you... Pro Skater on Game Boy Advance enjoy yeah and okay I guess <laughs> I mean I'm not gonna complain about it but you I feel like you guys should get the hits out of the way first yeah I mean that's one of the strengths of that service and I've talked about this before as well but like it's it's the Netflix thing where it's like all right I subscribe to Netflix to watch Umbrella Academy and Stranger Things but every once in a while like the Woodstock 99 documentary, something I wouldn't go out of my way to watch will pop up and I'll just be like, oh, okay, let me check this out. And I end up enjoying it. Same thing for a lot of like these old SNES games that I completely missed. It's like, all right, I have this subscription so I can play online and I can play Mario world and, and super Metroid whenever I want to. Yeah. You're you're just browsing channels. Yeah. And you're just like, I guess I'll watch a documentary on Robert Kennedy. Sure. (laughs) Well, Surreal, like I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a packed episode this week, so let's not waste any more time. Sure. Let's jump into some smaller bits of news before we close out this first segment with all the stuff out of the Splatoon 3 direct stream. First up, tradition carries on. Pokemon news is back in the front of the news segment, the way the Lord intended. 
This time, it's not about the games. It's not about the cards. It is the Pokemon Company announcing a new animated special arriving on Netflix. This is called uh, Pokemon the Arceus Chronicles, and it's Ash, Pikachu, and friends getting a message from Arceus. And then his friend group appears to be Go, Dawn, Brock, and Cynthia for this particular adventure. And it comes to Netflix on September 23rd. So have you kept up with the Pokemon anime at all? Not much, but Cynthia is like, isn't she like one of the Elite Four in one of the games? Isn't she like one of the... Yeah, so it says uh, that she's the, I think, the Sinnoh champion. Okay, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's there's some names here. I'm I'm always happy when Brock reemerges. I don't know what Misty is up to in the anime these days. I know she pops up every once in a while, but I'm always happy when you know the original three make an appearance. But uh, I don't know if I'm gonna watch this or not. <laughs> the last time I caught up with like the Pokemon anime, it was like the Sun and Moon series. I don't think I watched any of the Sword and Shield episodes. Uh, but the Sun and Moon anime was actually really good, and they had uh, a really distinct art style. This art style seems like it kind of combines the uh, sun and moon kind of some of the animation and the drawing styles with maybe a more traditional look for the characters uh but you know maybe i'll check this out i don't know i'll see what people think about it i'm not like dead set on it yeah i wonder i mean these things get planned so far ahead so far ahead of time that i wonder how much of this is inspired by the success of arceus or like i imagine they would have made this regardless but i wonder if netflix picked it up because things like Arceus is popular nowadays and so let's yeah let's totally pick this up instead of uh you know having it be on Crunchyroll or something or wherever else uh, Pokemon stuff gets distributed yeah so I don't know because like the early I was hearing some early uh rumblings with Pokemon Legends Arceus like probably late 2021 I was hearing some rumblings that like this game might not turn out pretty like that well like just based on some people I've talked to and uh, I'm glad it turned out well because I really loved it and maybe that was why there was a little bit of hesitation a little bit of a delay and they didn't have it like synced up for like all right well you know three months after you play Legends Arceus you can jump in to uh, to to this anime special and now now that it was a hit and reviewed well and a lot of people really enjoyed it now it's hurry hurry put together this this uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus inspired uh, adventure yeah, I, I'm like I said, it's probably like they were probably you know putting this together long before then. But I think the the deal behind it probably or could have you know manifested like oh the people actually like this game and it's sold really really well. Uh, let's let's fast track it versus trying to you know dawdle on it or not uh, pick it up. Yeah, but uh, speaking of when's the last time you did something? When's the last time you heard somebody talking about a cheat code they discovered in a video game? You know, it's it's been a really long time. I don't think I've heard people discover things in video games, uh, like, genuinely of, like, here's a secret thing that no one's been able to find well, uh, for a while. It seemed like we had one with Nier Automata a couple weeks ago. It seemed like And then it, it turned yeah. out to be a mod that somebody, like, made very, very well and tricked a lot of people. But mm-hmm. this, I don't know if you saw this news story. It's pretty weird news uh, that came out this past week. Two new cheat codes were discovered for Super Punch-Out on Super Nintendo. Did yeah, you see I, this? I, I saw that. That's, that is, uh, that is fun, fun to see, but also like, I, 
it, it does stand to like, just like the idea that video games had so much stuff hidden in them that you needed manuals and you needed people to explain stuff to you. Um, there is always the idea of like, ah, oh, people like players will find it. Like, it's fine. We don't need to explain it. But yeah, it's just the idea that like, you know, if you, if you don't lead people to things like co-op or may turn into a secret code, uh, there's a chance that just people will not find this stuff for, for years and years. Well, it's kind of like the initial philosophy of fatalities in Mortal Kombat, where like Ed Boon and John Tobias were like, let's not tell anybody about these. But if somebody happens to input the right codes at like the finish him sign or the finish him screen, that's when like these things will happen. So it's like they they relied on that word of mouth. And I guess some secrets were just never discovered. I'd love to talk to like one of the developers of Super Punch-Out and be like, did it catch you off guard that nobody ever discovered this? Or like, was this even like meant to be discovered because it, the, the way it is is it's like the first one lets you play free matches so on the title screen you hold y and r on the second controller and then press a or start on the first controller that lets you play free matches and then once you're in that match the second code is used in conjunction with free matches and it lets you access two-player mode so you hold b and y on the second controller and then press a or start on the first and it, it also works on the Nintendo Switch Online version of the game. So if you want to try it out for yourself, you can follow those instructions. Yeah. But, like, it's wild. But like, People are still yeah. discovering, like, legitimate things like this in a, in a like a 30-year-old game at this point. I'm, I'm curious about, like, I think nowadays that would just be a thing where, oh, yeah, it's on the roadmap uh, for content updates. But I wonder if this is just a thing where maybe the, the mode wasn't complete enough but then maybe it was still in the game. So I think they kind of like, I, I can't imagine that they sold the game on this. I, cause that would be a really glaring omission for them to say like, Hey, the game has co-op and then not have it be a feature in the game. So I wonder if they, if the developers thought like, Oh, this is, this is done enough for us to leave it in the game, but maybe it's not like refined enough for us to advertise it or sell, or, like make it an actual feature. So we'll leave it in, but we'll make it secret you know, a secret way to access it so people can play it. And then we'll, like, yeah, people just find it because people find cheat codes because that's what people did back then and then just nobody found the code. Yeah, it's just unbelievable that with how many, like, internet sleuths are out there. And yeah. Punch-Out's not, like, a no-name game. Like, this is a game that people really enjoy playing, especially, like, Super Punch-Out. A lot of people have love for that. And it's been on Nintendo Switch Online for years now. And it's a classic SNES game. I bet if you listed, like, the top... 15 or 20 SNES games, it would at least be in the conversation to make that list. Yeah, the fact that it works in the online version is... So could you potentially play online against other people? With, or like, could... Because if they coded like, hey, we're, we're going to let two separate players play online somehow using this feature, that would be really weird. Like, for them to code a thing that was secret uh, would be very interesting for them to hide... But I imagine it's just like you can play locally with two people in the online Switch version. There's no like online play involved. Yeah, I mean, only certain games have the online multiplayer. Like Mario Kart 64 has online multiplayer. Right. I don't think Super Punch-Out was... That would be really funny if they listed it and nobody like even paid attention to it. Like, oh, it must just be like an omission. It's like, nope, we knew this was going to get discovered at some yeah, point. We, we knew this is in the game and we made it, but I guess we just didn't know. We didn't know that people didn't know, maybe. Yeah, but you know what Switch game will have online multiplayer serial? We have Kirby's Dream Buffet, which uh, was announced a few weeks ago, and it seems like kind of like a Fall Guys style game meets a, maybe like a Mario Party type of situation. And we got a new trailer this week that kind of shows off the copy abilities and the three different modes. So basically the entire point of the game is to eat as many strawberries 
to become the biggest Kirby that you can. And there's the three modes are race, mini game, and battle royale. So race is like, you know, just get to the end as fast as possible, collecting as many strawberries along the way as you can. And then you get a ton of bonus strawberries depending on what place you finish in. Mini game is you eat the strawberries in different situations. Some of them fall from the sky. Some of them are hidden in boxes that you have to destroy. And then battle royale is knocking opponents off the stage while eating strawberries getting bigger and then there's exclusive copy abilities like drill and stone in battle royale so it's like more of a competitive like fighting almost situation and uh it's up to four players online or two players with local co-op which is a little disappointing i figured like we would get like maybe a a larger scale game if they're going to copy the the fall guys formula for a game like this um but you can also get costumes and color variations based on the strawberries you collect and then you also unlock more stages as you collect more strawberries over your your playing time like in general uh so how are you feeling about this game it's interesting when nintendo decides to do stuff like this i think what was it didn't they have like some fitness game that they came out with on the eShop a, a while ago like jump rope challenge oh yeah like it seems like there there's like a department within Nintendo that's always just like cranking out these like very small projects and they're not and Nintendo doesn't necessarily do a ton of like huge promotion and they just say like hey this is like they'll do one announcement release and then one trailer and then a, and then just release it but th- this is definitely seems like it's one of those but like the idea of it of them using Kirby for like their kind of battle royale or Fall Guys equivalent definitely feels right at home for that character i mean like you look at a fall guy and that's basically halfway to a kirby (laughs) yeah i mean and he's so malleable right like he has all these different abilities he can change form in some cases so like it makes sense because you can just do whatever you want with this character that masahiro sakurai created like 30 35 years ago i guess yeah 30 years ago we just did the 30 year anniversary of that a few months ago on here so go listen to that episode if you have a lot of love for kirby but Speaking of Kirby's Dream Buffet kind of being one of those, like, yeah, let's just do it and put it out there. It launches next week, August 17th. So uh, you don't have a long time to wait. Uh, But, you know, if you want to play actual Fall Guys, that game is on Switch as of June 21st. uh, And it's free to play right now. And it is currently running a Sonic the Hedgehog event. So, you know, I'm going to talk about it. You can earn rewards, including kudos, nameplates, and even Sonic sneakers by participating in a special level. Have you seen the name of this level, Suriel? Is it Green Hill Zone? It's Bean Hill Zone. Oh, <laughs> they got me. Which I nominate for the best level name of 2022. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can also buy costumes for Sonic Knuckles, Tails, Supersonic, and Dr. Robotnik, and then also get Sonic's foot tap emote. And the event runs through Monday, August 15th. So if you want to do it, like, you better get on this because you have, like, a couple days by the time this episode airs. Have you played Fall Guys at all in, like, the, the recent months? I played it, I think, once the week it came out and did not like the way it controlled. <laughs> so I wow. said, like, so in, like, I, I, I followed it for a little while just watching the game's success and stuff. But I think actually playing it, that was one of those games where I immediately said, like... I, I can keep up with it. I don't need to actually play this. I'm not super interested. But, like, seeing – I'm surprised that it has been successful for as long as it has been and, like, how many crossovers they keep doing that. Because, like, they, it seems like they are keeping a Fortnite-like pace of now this guy is in the game. Now this character is in the game. Now this – you know, we've we've added all this these other crossovers where I definitely did not expect them to have that kind of longevity. Well, Epic Games bought Mediatonic 
yeah. I think last year, and the crossovers have only grown substantially. Like, I turned it on for the first time since they went free to play just this week, and I was playing through it right now. So like they're getting ready for this Sonic thing when by the time I, I started playing, and so it's like they're advertising that, and then it's like, but going on right now is a Jungle Book event, and I'm like, what Jungle Book? Yeah. So like it's weird, like all the crossovers. I, I, I would imagine Epic was like, hey, that you guys like doing crossovers. You're a really successful indie game. Let's just buy you, and then we're gonna use all of our crossover kind of leverage that we have with Fortnite and get you even more collaborations. And I feel yeah. like that's perfect pipeline for them. Epic is definitely the like we have the money to. We are the crossover company now more than more oh, even absolutely. than Marvel. Do you see the uh, the Dragon Ball thing in in Fortnite? I saw it just. I didn't have a chance to look at it yet. Uh, I think it's just a teaser for now. It's just I think it's a tweet from Fortnite saying like name your wish, and they they have like a, a picture of the golden Shenron dragon um kind of coming out of a mountain so it definitely seems like they're teasing a, a dragon ball crossover which i get I, I i don't know how i feel about goku holding a gun seems kind of unnecessary but they gave superman a gun so and spider-man I guess yeah. it's fun yeah so <laughs> i get like i i think i've been i think one of my the thing that i've always wanted to see is in some form goku fighting superman and if fortnite's the way it happens i guess i'll take it i guess i'll play fortnite as goku and try to find a superman and kill them Dude, imagine, I don't know who the parent company of, was it Shonen? Shueisha, I think it's like the okay. company that owns everything. But imagine if Warner Brothers buys that, Warner Brothers Discovery buys them, and then we get God. Goku in Multiversus. And we they do what Flip Smash Brothers out, was yeah. unable to do. Yeah, that, that would be super fun to see. Just finally put Goku in a Smash-like game and have it not be Smash Brothers, I think, would be... That, that, that is the coup, right? Like, the, the thing that says, like, Multiverses has more staying power. Because it's all, that game is already huge. It's, like, yeah, 10 million players. Uh, but that, that would be interesting to see, for sure. Yeah, that would be incredible. Also, when I said uh, Goku, my Google Home just started talking, so... <laughs> okay, Goku. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. Yeah, that's why I had to mute my mic while you were talking. Just <laughs> I, I just installed it. It's upstairs, but I guess I got too excited about that guy from Dragon Ball Z fighting Superman in a multiverses. But yeah, that game is taking off uh, fast multiverses. Like, if you're a Smash Brothers fan, check it out. I mean, it's it's a free to play, early access title right now, so why not? Yeah, that, uh, definitely worth checking out for sure if you like Smash Brothers. So speaking of Sonic, we have a couple of quick stories here. And then uh, we have one thing that's up your alley. We learned that the Sonic the Hedgehog 3 movie is set for December 20th, 2024 in theaters, which, you know, that's a a ways off. But right now, looking at the movie calendar release schedule, that is the same day as Avatar 3, which, you know, is very subject to change. But uh, have you seen the Sonic movies? I saw the first one and thought it was all right. I haven't seen the second one. I'm kind of waiting for it to. It, it, it's on the like wait for it to come out for free in some place tier. Well, it's on Paramount Plus. If you happen to have a oh. trial available for that, I'd recommend it. I, I will wait until it's on a streaming service other than Paramount, or I might just watch <laughs> it during my free because uh, they released that um, that show by the American Vandal guy players, and I might just subscribe for a week and get that and maybe watch the Sonic movie. But I think the the Sonic movie was promising, and I'm curious to see what they do in the second one. Um, but the third, I mean, I already kind of know the big twist of the, uh, uh, at the end of that one, but it's kind of interesting that in like the midst of all these other video game things kind of still percolating that Sonic is like the one that it's like, yep, video game franchise, successful movie franchise, uh, 
it's just going to keep it's it's not it's going to continue being really popular in mediums that aren't video games uh more so than i think a lot of other properties yeah it's it's great to see it continue to get more successful like i i've said it on the show that like you know talking to sonic team for the cover story they were like yeah like we were blown away by like the influx of new fans that we got when we put out the sonic movie like the first one and then the second one was even more so and like uh, to your point of like all right i saw the first one i thought it was okay i had that same experience and then i left the i had an early screening for sonic 2 so i could write a uh write a review and then interview the the cast and i walked out of that being like whoa that was much better for like especially video game fans like the first one was a good family movie like it was definitely a geared towards kids this is still very family friendly, but it's like, all right, there's more like lore being pulled from like the Sonic franchise. So yeah. I'm I'm excited for it. And then uh, we also got a patch for Sonic Origins. And normally I wouldn't cover like a small title update on the show, but it fixes one of the most annoying bugs I've encountered in a long time. And that was Tails just jumping constantly in Sonic <laughs> 2. So if you've played Sonic 2, you know that, like, if you leave Tails behind, he'll just, like, respawn and fly down to your location after a second. He didn't do that in Sonic Origins. In Sonic Origins, he would just jump constantly, and all you would hear is, boop, 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 and it, until you either, until he either drowned or you beat the level or you entered a special stage, it was unplayable. I had to mute it while I was playing for my review because it was just so terrible, and it happened every single level. But it fixed that and then also addressed some misnamed items in the museum and some other bugs. So not a, really a whole lot to talk about there. I just wish they would add the OG Sonic 3 music, but I know that's never happening because of all the weird licensing and everything. But you have yeah. to deal with the Michael Jackson estate. Yeah, please just get it figured out. I don't care. Like, you know, Sega has some money. They were just saying, like, uh, how well they're doing financially despite sales being a little down. They're like, yeah, you know, we're still doing great. So yeah, be great enough to go buy the license for Launch Base Zone, Ice Cap Zone, and yeah, I don't even care about uh, Carnival or uh, yeah, Carnival Night Zone. We can just we can leave that off. I don't care. But uh, this isn't really Nintendo news per se. But Arcade One Up announced a Marvel vs. Capcom two cabinet at Evo this year. It includes eight games centered around Marvel vs. Capcom uh, or Marvel and Capcom fighting games, and it's the first time the game has been officially available since 2013. Which uh, I'm assuming you have a lot of love for Marvel vs. Capcom too. Yeah, I I think I, I love watching it. I think it's like one of the most it, the most ambitious crossovers uh, in video game history. But uh, yeah, it definitely have a lot of memories of unlocking everything in the in the PS2 uh, version, playing a lot of the arcade version, uh, and just like playing through the arcade mode of that game so many times and playing it with friends. Uh, that this is like I haven't been tempted by a lot of the arcade cabinets from uh, Arcade One Up, not because like the games are bad, but I just don't know that I have a like the the space or desire to have like an arcade cabinet in my house. But this is like if I were to have one, it's either this or like a, a Street Fighter Three Third Strike cabinet. Oh, yeah. Like th- those are the two that I would make any use of, and just the the fact that it has Marvel vs. Capcom One and all of the other ones, uh, Street like Street Fighter versus X Men specifically, I I really like. Um, and, and I think they have like one or two of the beat 'em ups, like that is that is a lot. Uh, that is like one of the be- better packages they've put together for one of these. Yeah, it's a really solid collection. Um, and the other thing is, is that like 
it seems like they've learned a lot of lessons from like the quality. Like early on, like I have one of the very like really early Mortal Kombat cabinets, and it's just Mortal Kombat One, Mortal Kombat Two, and Ultimate Mortal Kombat Three, which is a good collection. I have NBA Jam as well, and then I also have a Street Fighter Two Capcom Legacy collection, which is like all the versions of Street Fighter Two. And then also, like, several other Capcom arcade games. And it's, like, a total of 12 games. I think six of them are Street Fighter 2, or, like, four of them are Street Fighter 2 or something. But, like, you know, it's a lot of uh, classic Capcom games. They're, they're realizing that it's hard to justify a huge price tag if you only have, like, one or two games on it, right? It has to have, like, yeah. a, a wide representation. And this is an incredible collection, like... Like you said, X-Men versus Street Fighter, Marvel versus Street Fighter, Marvel versus Capcom 1, Marvel versus Capcom 2, and then a f- several other like Marvel kind of beat 'em up games. Yeah, it, it like this is the kind of thing that if they made like a a Capcom fighting collection 2 or something or like a Marvel Capcom fighting collection, like th- these would be all the games that would be on that. So it's you're basically paying for an arcade cabinet that, that gives you uh like a huge collection of of like Capcom fighting history, which is really cool. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Do you think that this kind of signals an opening up of Marvel vs. Capcom 2 to be available on, like, console-based collections? I would I would love for that to be the case. I don't know what their, what the, like, what the licensing deal for this kind of thing was, um, but it definitely seems like it, it kind of shows that those companies are still talking, right? So... Uh, just shy of making a new Marvel versus Capcom game, it, seem, it seems like a no-brainer to just release this, and I could see them saying like, "Well, let's release this arcade cabinet first, and then maybe a year down the line, we'll say like, hey, by popular demand, we're, we're releasing this collection as like a product, right?'" In a way that that I don't think like the the Capcom fighting collection that they had this year, the the one that has all the Darkstalkers game in it, mm-hmm. in it, I don't think that merits its own cabinet. Like, I I would love that because I love Darkstalkers, but I don't think that's a cabinet that sells super well. Whereas this, this is definitely seems like this is really popular. Just like uh, the arcade art of just like all the Marvel characters and all the Capcom characters being on the side, like that is like one of the biggest attractions because it's like that that just looks really good in a in a like a you know like a den or a, a game room, right? It's oh, just yeah. having that art there more so than like maybe you maybe you play it for an hour, a couple a, f- a few times when your friends are there, but like its predominant function is going to be is like check out this cool art that is bound to it. <laughs> to like this nostalgic thing of an arcade machine right i have them all set up in my basement uh which is right next to where i'm recording this podcast and every time i take a new person down into the basement that's their first thing that they react to is oh my god you have street fighter 2 arcade cabinet or nba jam like they just run right to it and they're like does this actually work and i turn it on i'm like you bet your ass it does and uh yeah it's they are very cool conversation pieces and uh yeah, it's it's always really cool. But yeah, I, I looking back at it, it's like I hardly ever use these things like in a, from a practical standpoint. But man, are they cool to have? And also, like, I would love to like that's the first thing I do it when I go to like a, an arcade these days, like that has like retro machines. I always seek out the Street Fighter or the Marvel versus Capcom cabinet if they have one, because that's yeah. like you know an easy thing to pick up and play, kind of warm up your muscles a little bit. And uh, I've, I haven't seen a Marvel versus Capcom two cabinet in. I can't remember the last time I saw one, actually. Yeah, I, I I would love for this to actually make its way onto home consoles, but, like, this arcade machine seems like the one they get for me. But I, I still have, like, a huge compunction of, like, at some point I might need to move or, like, and these seem like such a huge object to have to move around a lot. So uh, 
even I'm still kind of hesitant, but this is the one. This is definitely the one that tempted me the most. Let me tell you something. I might be moving like in the next year, and I have had ang- very much anxiety about <laughs> that very thing. Like I have that, and my display cases with all of like my collectibles and everything. They're glass display cases on all sides, and I'm like, uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, let's move on to the main talker on the news segment this time around, and that is Splatoon 3, which comes out next month, and we finally got an in-depth look at the game through a single-game-focused Nintendo Direct in the middle of this past week. And, I mean, this Direct was super dense, so we'll kind of speed-run through it because we have a very chunky main segment of this show. But first, Surreal, what is your experience level with the Splatoon franchise? Um, I played... I played my fair share of the original Splatoon. I didn't play a ton of Splatoon 2, but I did end up playing through both of the campaigns recently because um, I saw Splatoon 2 was on sale. So I played those, and I found that, like, I think those campaigns are, like, okay. as like, hey, this is an intro to a multiplayer shooter. Um, but I enjoyed my time with Splatoon. It, uh, I found, it, like, I think this is going to be the case for the new one, but it definitely seems like they're definitely sticking with the like hey uh, a lot of this is going to be progression unlocks and saying like hey if you want to if you want to use like this specific gun in multiplayer you're going to have to earn enough credits to you know use this and they're definitely doubling down on that with like all the different unlockables and the perks and stuff uh but it definitely seems like they're just kind of iterating on a lot of what made splatoon successful right is to just hey we're going to add more unlocks and kind of give you those progression hooks inside of the multiplayer Mm mm-hmm yeah, and they, they've definitely uh, taken the shortcomings of the first two games, especially at launch, and seem to have applied those lessons to this one. Because one of the big things I've always criticized Splatoon, I've reviewed both of the Splatoon games for Game Informer at launch, and my complaint about both of them was like, oh, this game plays really well. There's just no content at launch. And they promise like post-launch content, but you know, when you're reviewing a game at launch, you have to review it for what it is at that moment, not like what it could be if like they follow through on their promises. So it's like my Splatoon reviews, as much as I love those games, I think they're both in the sevens. So like, it's like, yeah, this is a good game, but like there's a lot that they could have done to make it better. This time they're putting 12 turf war stages in total with more added with post-launch updates, but that compares to five in Splatoon one at launch and eight in Splatoon two at launch. So 12 stages is a pretty solid step up. That's a 50% increase from Splatoon 2's launch. But uh, just to kind of run down some of this stuff real quick, the this entry takes us out of Inkopolis in favor of Splatsville. And uh, in this city, we get our news from Deep Cut, which is a new like idol trio consisting of Fry, Shiver, and Big Man, who is not a man at all. He's actually a yeah. massive Manta, manta ray. M- big Manta, yeah. Yeah, Big Manta. There we go. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so you have Turf War, which I mentioned before. It's the 4v4 kind of mainstay mode from the series where two teams work to cover up the map with as much of their ink as possible over the course of three minutes. It's pretty standard from uh, the, the first two entries, but you do get some new moves. Uh, squid Surge, which makes it so you can like boost up a wall while you're swimming as a squid, or Squid Roll, which lets you jump out of the ink as a squid and basically do a 180. And while you're doing that, you're also invincible from, like, opposing ink. And then we got a look at five of the new stages, and then several of the other stages are returning from Splatoon 1 and 2, although we only saw Splatoon 1 levels. Um, Museum Dalfasino, Hammerhead Bridge, and Mahi Mahi Resort were the ones they referenced. 
And then Splatfests are back, thank God, because those are actually, <laughs> I say that kind of sarcastically, but like they are legit super fun when they happen. Yeah, and this this version actually makes them more interesting by having it be three-sided, right? Like at some point, I think whoever is winning the Splatfest ends up being basically uh, wedged between two other sides, right? So there's like three factions on the map and one of them's in the middle and the other two are are kind of on either side of it. And, and I think that's a pretty interesting wrinkle just to add the Splatoon to the Splatfest because like it definitely seemed like, oh, there's there was usually like one overwhelming answer that ended up winning all the matches. So having this extra layer definitely makes the split the like the Splatfests not feel like, oh well this this week the version like the the main multiplayer mode just has like a different theme and like having attaching an actual like gameplay difference to the Splatfests I think is a really smart idea. It really is. And uh, yeah, like you said, like there were normally two teams. So it'd be like, all right, what do you want to put on your sandwich, ketchup or mustard? And you chose one of them or uh, ketchup and mayonnaise, whatever it is. And it's like, all right, well, one one of those kind of runs away with it. And then that team ends up winning it. But now it's like, all right, do you want ketchup, mustard or mayonnaise? And now it's a little bit more interesting. Maybe the, the mayonnaise is that third party candidate that that comes in and steals some of the votes from one of the sides. Um, but yeah, having three teams is a really unique thing. And there's two halves. And the first one is just standard 4v4 turf war battles. And then the second half are all tricolor turf war, which I didn't realize this. In the direct, I don't think they hinted at this, but it's 4v2v2. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah. I, I assumed it would be like three teams of four, but I guess they're sticking with eight players and they're just saying like, hey, this, this, I guess it makes sense, but definitely gives the Levy team a little bit of an advantage, but I guess maybe being wedged between two separate sides kind of offset side advantage. That's, I hadn't thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah. So the first place team starts in the middle and the other teams attack from opposite ends and they, the first place team has to kind of basically defend their part in the middle, which that adds some interesting wrinkles to it. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm curious I'm, to see how that ends up being balanced. But like, yeah, th- like I, I love that they're actually iterating on the gameplay for the Splatfests. And we have our first Splatfest date. Uh, Splatfest World Premiere, it's called. And it's Rock, Paper, or Scissors, which it, it, that's a clever first one for like, yeah. the, the new three-team system. Because there's no definitive right answer. Right. Unless you actually are taking in real-world circumstances in which Rock always wins. Because yes. Paper's paper just covers rock and doesn't actually do doesn't actually do it well unless the paper suffocates the rock if anything the rock the rock could probably break through the paper pretty easily if you just continue to apply pressure yeah imagine if you held a piece of paper in front of your face and i said all right i'm gonna throw this rock towards your face yeah what's gonna win yeah are you trusting that that paper is gonna stop that rock from breaking through no you're not no so sure. actually the Splatfest comes out before Splatoon 3 <laughs> even comes out, which is great because yeah. that means you can download it in the eShop and play it, at, I'm pretty sure, for free. Is that is that what they meant? Because like, I noticed that it is before the game's actually out, so I wonder if, it, if it's basically like this first Splatfest is a free demo. Yeah, it's like a beta slash demo. So you can download it from the eShop on August 25th play some of the things in there. Like I think there's like a tutorial and everything you can play and kind of run around like the lobby but the actual Splatfest and the multiplayer matches start August 27th. Okay, that, that's that's a pretty good idea for them, for sure. Yeah, and I think they did that with Splatoon 2 as well. Um, I forget what they called it then. It wasn't Splatfest World Premiere. I think it was like some clever term on, or playoff of like something. I don't know. I'm just going to move on to Table Turf Battles, 
which was the most unexpected thing, I think. It's, it's a spinoff of Turf Wars, and it's a deck-based dueling mode. 1v1 competitive card battler. Uh, you paint shapes with different cards, then you charge up power and unleash it with a special attack, and every player in the game is given a starter deck, and they say there's more than 150 cards to collect in this. So... I don't know if this is like their route to monetization or if this is like another thing you just earn cards as you play. Like, what did you make of this? I'm curious to see how it's actually balanced because it seemed like there are, there are like all the different cards have a different number of tiles. They, because it's basically like a, a card version of a turf war where you're trying to cover up as much of the enemy's territory as possible and mm-hmm. you know, cover most of the map. But I wonder how they're balancing the idea that there are cards that cover more of the stage than others. Because I guess the way you offset that is by making the the larger cards, the cards that cover more squares, kind of uh, wonkier shapes or like more simple shapes to, to figure out. So like they're easier to overlap versus like maybe the smaller ones are more unconventional shapes. But I'm because I could see a situation where like someone who's beat the game and unlocked everything basically has a huge advantage because they just have all the high number cards. But I have to imagine they've thought of that. So I'm I'm interested to see how it turns out. But I could definitely just seeing it it being completely broken, but still kind of fun to play. This will either be something I get helplessly hooked on, or something I play during the review phase and then never touch again. Right. Like it's it, I feel like it's going to be one way or the other, and I'm interested to see yeah. how it all turns out. Gives you but, another uh, progression unlock system to kind of chase, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Salmon Run is back. And did you, you said you only played Splatoon 1 and then Splatoon 2's story. So you've yeah. not played any Salmon Run. No, I th- I played it at E3 with you, I believe. Okay. The one time we went to, uh, to E3 to play Splatoon. And I think I played that with you then. And that's about it. So it's basically their version of Horde mode from Gears of War. Uh, four players co-op collect power eggs from the salmonids that are like the bad guys that are advance- advancing on the team. You earn golden eggs by defeating boss, boss salmonids, and they showed us two of the bosses. There's the slammin' lid, which is a saucer that it looks like a flying saucer, basically. And then it creates barriers and protects the salmonids on the ground. And then if you get too close to it, it'll actually slam down and crush you. And then there's Big Shot, which is just like fat fish that fires projectiles at you from a distance and then there's kohozuna which is a king salmonid that's not even a boss it's a king salmonid and it appears just before the the round ends sometimes and you have to fire your golden eggs back at them to drive them back and like before they come and just basically destroy you before the time limit runs up and the, the round ends and you get to escape um and that, that seems like it could be pretty intense. And then there's a mode called Big Run, I guess, where they just the, – the, whoever was narrating this just lost their damn mind. And I have no idea what it is. But all I, all I could glean from it is the Salmonids invade the city where the, the Inklings live. And it's like, all right, well, what does that mean? I have no idea, but it's a thing. Yeah. Did they mention whether or not this mode is going to be temporarily available? Like, wasn't – the case in it in splatoon that it was available on like certain dates and times yeah that was one of the big criticisms i had for splatoon 2 is that salmon run was only available like from like it was like a six or seven hour window every day and it, or like it would be like all right well it's available this weekend and it's like just let me play it whenever i, I don't know if they were yeah. like worried there wouldn't be a big enough player base for it or something and they had to like consolidate all the people who wanted to play salmon run into like this one area but 
hopefully that's not the case with this. I hope it's just like, all right, we saw that people like this mode. We're just going to let it be open whenever. Yeah, that, that would definitely help people get into that mode for sure. And then the third main pillar of Splatoon is the story mode. This one is called Return of the Mammalians, and uh, you're playing as Agent 3 this time, and same type of situation. You do battle with the Octarian army, fight bosses, explore stages, solve puzzles, uh, platforming, and they, they advertise it as good for getting to know the movement and weapons, which seems like you would agree with that. I think that the, the story modes in this are way beyond just being like a fun tutorial. I think they're actually pretty clever for the most part i think like some of these stages are designed really well some of them are super fun and uh, i'd heard that the octo expansion was like uh a step above a lot of the the stuff they did before then so i i would be i'm curious to check out the the single player campaign for three because it seems like they also promised like hey we're doing large scale single player dlc so it definitely seems like they're doubling down on like the single player aspect of splatoon so people have something else to do besides like play matches so do you have Nintendo Switch Online? I have the base version. I don't have like the expansion pass that would get me the, the free expansion, right? But I, okay. I'm thinking about it just because if I'm going to pay for If I'm going to play the Octo expansion, I'm going to have to pay for it. Uh, and I figure I may as well just pay the extra $10 and have a year of the Switch Online service. Yeah, play N64 and Genesis and also get like yeah. the Mario Kart and Animal Crossing That's uh, true, DLC yeah. as well. That's how I'm playing the Mario Kart DLC right now. Yeah. Um. And they said this is the finale of the saga, which I guess this has been a saga. I don't know. I guess like this... I, yeah, I'm not sure what they've been building towards having played those games pretty recently. Um, but yeah, like I, I I will buy this game just to see that stuff. And it, um, I didn't like play Splatoon two at the time, but I could see myself playing more Splatoon three and just kind of getting into it, especially well, it at the height its, of like, it. Yeah, once it, like you know, at, at at release when people are playing it and talking about it, I could definitely see myself kind of picking it up casually. I don't think I'd like ever get super competitive or play the rank modes, which they say are coming after release. Yeah, um, but I feel like the time between then and um, like the first couple of weeks after launch, I could see myself playing some of this for sure. So you, you've mentioned the post-launch stuff a, a couple times here. They, they have a new in-game catalog in the stores that will rotate every three months with new seasonal content for at least two years. Um, and that's, those are in-game stores that you use your in-game currency. This isn't like a premium thing, as far as I know. Uh, they're going to put new weapons around that time as well. There's also X-Battle and League Battle, and then also new maps. Uh, and then large-scale paid DLC, as you had mentioned. But let me just speed run some of these. Uh, oh, and they've also committed to the post-launch content for two years after launch. So it's a pretty good investment there. But... Other modes, uh, and we'll just get through this really quick and then wrap up this first segment. Um, Anarchy Battle, Splat Zones, Tower Control, Rainmaker, and Clam Blitz are all on rotation, they say. They're adding private battles so you can play custom rule sets with friends. Now, that's really attractive to me. Um, Ghosts is an area you can go and see what your friends are up to and drop into their matches or invite them, which is a huge improvement because getting together with your friends in Splatoon 2 or especially 1 was just a headache. It sucked to try to like play Splatoon with your friends in either of those yeah. games. So I'm glad they fixed that. Um, battle replays, watch old footage, and then you can share clips if you want to. Excited for that. I'm sure there's going to be some fun stuff shared for that. And then locker room. This is a, I think an underrated part. Customization is a big part of Splatoon, like gear and weapons and like play styles and everything. But locker room allows you to place weapons, stickers, signs, clothing, or pictures that you take in photo mode in your locker. 
and then you can go into the locker room and view the lockers of people that you played with recently. So just kind of like a, a form of expression. It seems like a, a fun little thing to kind of just further drive home that this is your character and like your 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 story basically. Not yeah, in the it, not in the Final it, Fantasy Ten sort so, of way. So does it show other players as like builds? Because I I feel like you could you could easily use that as, hey, this person destroyed me online. What were they like? they must have been cheating what were they using and then seeing their loadout and copying it and saying like well if you like it so much and think it's so good you can just use it yourself i think they did that in splatoon 2 actually i think like not with the locker situation but like with a um like you could kind of see this is who splatted you here's what they were using and like here's what perks they had and all that stuff and i don't know like Maybe you could screen cap it on the switch. Be like, oh, that guy was really good. Let me screen cap his build when he he splats me. And right. maybe that was the way you could do that. But like, yeah, I would imagine this is a way you could also see like a player's loadout, which I think would be very helpful. Yeah, for sure. Um, so wrapping up real quick with Splatoon. Splatoon three comes to Switch on September 9th. and then as I'd mentioned before, the first Splatfest is through the Splatfest World premiere on the eShop starting on August 25th with multiplayer matches kicking off on August 27th. Anything closing on Splatoon 3 before we uh, take our break and transition to our main segment, Surreal? Uh, I'm excited for it. Um, it seems like Nintendo has a decent year ahead of it, so uh, I'm I'm always curious to see what Nintendo's doing in multiplayer games. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into it. All right, so we are going to take our first break And when we come back, our main segment is all about celebrating one of the most beloved franchises in the history of gaming, because when we return, we'll be diving deep into the history of the Street Fighter franchise. We will be right back. While the Nintendo Direct featuring Splatoon 3 was probably the biggest Nintendo news of the week, I wanted to take this opportunity to pay tribute to one of the most iconic franchises in the video game history, as it celebrates its 35th anniversary this week. When it originally came out, Street Fighter implemented some pretty cool ideas, but it kind of failed to make waves with with its initial entry. Suriel, can you talk to me a little bit about what the fighting game genre even looked like before the first Street Fighter hit the scene? It wasn't... uh, It it was barely a genre, really. (laughs) Um, You had... I mean, before Street Fighter, there was stuff like, what, ER, Kung Fu, and, and... uh, games like that that were like more probably classified as brawlers um, than anything else. It didn't seem like there was a ton of um, games that had you like in that 2D plane, you know, physically fighting each other until even the first Street Fighter, which didn't have multiplayer. Um, so it, it was definitely like a, a genre that like existed but wasn't classified. It hadn't like fully become a genre. Um, and then it was really like the first Street Fighter that kind of tune people into like hey you can actually play these games um in in ways that were fun and obviously they had like the novelty of like the, the punch system if you look up the the photos of the arcade machine for the original street fighter where they just had two big buttons that you just physically had to punch harder to get stronger attacks out of mm-hmm. which you know probably worked in japan did not work at all in the u.s because people were like hopping on top of the machines and jumping off of them and landing off with their feet on the on the buttons and stuff trying to hit <laughs> them as hard as possible um but the yeah it really was not until street fighter 2 that they really happened upon like what if we pitted people against each other and then an entire genre was basically born from there yeah so just to kind of take a step back we're gonna go kind of mainline game by mainline game here 
the first Street Fighter cabinet hit Japanese and European arcades in August 1987. So here we are celebrating 35 years of it. The game was directed by Takashi Nishiyama, who took the notion of a one-on-one boss battle from Kung Fu Master and made it into a full-fledged game. And he used Bruce Lee's Game of Death as inspiration for his ideas. And uh, I found a 2020 oral history of Street Fighter One on Polygon by uh, Matt Leon. And Nishiyama said the following quote about creating Street Fighter. Uh, One day at Capcom, we had a meeting between the development staff and the sales team, and this particular meeting happened to run very long. I think it was about two hours. Personally, as someone on the development side, I found it very hard to stay interested during these meetings, so I tended to daydream and think about games. And I remember not not really paying attention and jotting down some ideas on paper. Then there was just this one moment where the idea for Street Fighter popped into my head, and I drew it out on a piece of paper during the meeting. I was sitting next to Capcom producer Yoshiki Akamoto, and I asked him what he thought about it, and he said it looked very interesting. So basically, he was bored in a meeting, and he (laughs) created Street Fighter in that moment, which is just absolutely wild to think, like, oh, I was bored, so I created one of the most enduring and beloved franchises in gaming history. I like the idea of, like, two people sitting in a meeting and, like, talking over and being very, like... I, I can't imagine they were super rude, but like just like having this minor conversation around the meeting and everyone kind of looking like, hey, guys, we're trying to you know present a meeting here. And you know, we were creating uh, one of our most important franchises in our history. Excuse us. And then yeah. they just they're just talking amongst themselves. <laughs> so after that meeting, uh, Nishiyama made a design doc out of that concept and he showed it to a Capcom higher up. Then they gl- greenlit the project. That he just he probably didn't tell them. Oh, it was because I was bored in that marketing meeting that we had. Uh, but Nishiyama then showed those sketches to planner Hiroshi Matsumoto, who expanded on the idea to the point that Nishiyama actually said that Street Fighter was Matsumoto's game. And then uh, Matsumoto said, "Quote: After Nishiyama came up with the basic concept, I thought about what kinds of characters we should have, what kinds of moves they should have, what kinds of fighting styles they should have." At the time, I was very interested in martial arts, and just as a hobby, I had studied and read up on them so extensively, so I was excited. And that was, again, from that Polygon uh, oral history. And uh, it was the first entry in the Street Fighter franchise, but I would say it's pretty much a far cry from, like, what we know now. Uh, They can only use Ryu or Ken, and if you're playing single player, you could automatically, you would just automatically control Ryu. And then uh, they have the same moves, techniques, and attributes. So it wasn't like anything like we are now, where it's like, oh, who do you main in Street Fighter? It's like, no, this is, you I play, play Ryu or Ken. Hey, at least it was perfectly balanced, right? You only had one <laughs> character, they, they won every match. So. As all things should be. Yeah. Um, and then in, in single player, players faced off in an arcade mode of 10 characters. Uh, some people might be familiar with some of these names. There's Gen. Do you pronounce it Gen or Jen? I believe it's Gen. Okay, Gen, Birdie, Adon, and Sagat. I think Sagat is definitely the uh, most noteworthy name there. He's the final boss of the first game. And then, according to Nishiyama in that same interview, they wanted to have all these characters playable, but budget and scheduling concerns prevented that from happening, so they reduced it down to just Ryu and Ken as uh, playable characters. And then you had mentioned this. The the cabinet itself was extremely unique because some of them just had two pressure pads that reacted to how hard you hit them, which, you know, that's a very novel concept, I feel like. Yeah, I that, that definitely kind of tells you more about how 
they thought about that game as being like it's it's like a novelty brawler it's kind of a game of death thing not like hey we're trying to figure out how to create a franchise right because this was kind of the age where capcom was just kind of experimenting with all kinds of things in in like their arcade success and this was just like here's here's a thing we can do i guess yeah so based on how hard you hit those two buttons it let you do light medium and hard attacks and then (laughs) <laughs> in reaction to the uh, the way that the public behaved, Capcom also put out a cabinet that included the six-button configuration. Uh, because as you'd imagine, the pressure pads basically encouraged players to beat the hell out of these machines and cause damage to them. <laughs> right. Uh, did you ever get to play one of the cabinets using the pressure pads? No, I would have loved to. I would have loved to do the same thing. It's just like smack that button as hard as I can and see how how much damage my Dragon Punch could do. Um, <laughs> but I know that's probably not a thing that is like good for the long term health of it. I would be surprised to see how many like of the how many of those machines are left that are in good condition where the, those oh buttons God. are not completely busted. I think I think a Street Fighter One arcade cabinet in good condition would probably be like in that like holy grail tier of like well-maintained mint condition arcade cabinets i'm just trying to figure out like if any of them even exist on youtube i can't yeah i can't i I can't imagine there are too many of them at this point right yeah i'm just looking at i i did a quick google search and nothing popped up so i don't know if that's even it even makes like it's a possibility unless somebody restored one you know right um so it, it would be very interesting for them to do uh, to re-release, I guess they re- they have re-released it with like the the three button combination version, but I would love to see a version like a novelty controller that is just like they they should do that at some point. Just re-release a controller for their anniversary that is just like it's got two buttons, and the harder you press the button on your controller, the more damage it does. <laughs> but the thing about Street Fighter One is that it just wasn't a great game overall. No. And I fired it up a couple of occasions because it is on the Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection on Switch. And uh, not only was it not a great game back then, boy, has it not aged as well as its, as its successors. Uh, have you ever played Street Fighter One for anything other than just like historical curiosity? No, I've, I played the I played it on the 30th anniversary collection, and yeah, just like the the way jumps work in that game are super is like they're Stiff. basically yeah very like set destination of where you're going to land uh well i mean which is the case in all street fight against but it just feels very like okay you jump and then the like a favorite multiplayer jumping would be the worst thing in the game because you know where you're going to land and so like the enemy could just like immediately punish you for that and yeah a lot of the the attacks and stuff were just really stiff and, and it didn't feel good to play at all not at all no and like it definitely wasn't the best example that we would get of a fighting game but it did lay the groundwork with like the light, medium, and hard attacks, and the ability to block, the ability to challenge other fighters in like a one-on-one fight. Right, special moves, things like special that. moves. Yeah, but how do you look back on the first Street Fighter today? I mean, it's interesting how even now, basically most of this cast has been in other Street Fighter games, so it almost acted as like here's some initial character concepts we have. You haven't seen like what like the first three characters like retsu geki and joe are still not in the games but everyone else basically i think i want to say okay well lee's not in it i'm looking at a list but like you know gen birdie eagle uh adon and sagat were all like they're all like you know beloved characters now yeah. um but it definitely 
was like a good starting point with that showed like hey the most important part of these games are the characters like the the things that people like is watching these like very over the top character designs fight it out and back then especially like the the gameplay was kind of almost beside the point as long as you had something to play and it felt oh and it felt like you were actually fighting and had that spirit of competition i think was all that kind of mattered and thankfully it was successful enough for them to make a sequel yeah, I mean, I think that I look back at Street Fighter One as it was a like a, a, a successful foundation that they laid, and it was obviously very important for establishing this genre as like an actual genre. But it was kind of like the classic example of the first game in the series having some good ideas, but not quite nailing it. And I think they missed nailing it by a pretty wide margin, honestly. But like the big success that they were kind of searching for wasn't very far off because Street Fighter 2 completely changed the fighting game genre and like the arcade scene as a whole, which uh, that came out in 1991 in arcades. And, you know, the first version was, uh, was titled The World Warrior and it gave players several improvements, including the ability to play as several characters, each of whom had their own play style, attacks and special moves. And then uh, we obviously Ryu and Ken carried forward. And then we also got to see Sagat come back as a boss character. But other than that, we got a whole new suite of characters. Nobody else returned from those games. We can now choose from Ryu and Ken and then E Honda, Blanca, Guile, Chun-Li, Zangief, and Dalsim with the four boss characters who at the time could only be played by the CPU, Boxer, known as Balrog in the U.S., Claw, known as Vega in the U.S., Sagat and Dictator, known as M. Bison in the U.S. So before we jump yeah. into like the impact of this game, could you explain to the listeners why I had to name them off that way? Uh, there is a lot of confusion about the names. Um, it's actually interesting because like Street Fighter 1 has a character named Mike in it, who is very similar to Balrog, but uh, they're technically not the same character for, I think, maybe similar reasons. Because in Street Fighter 2, the original Japanese name, of the character is uh, Mike Bison. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were kind of afraid of being sued by Mike Tyson. So they, in the US, they basically uh, swapped all of the names around uh, so that uh, Vega, or this is going to get confusing. So the character that we know as M. Bison here is the, is the dictator. Um, and so he was called Vega in Japan and they renamed him to Bison. Uh, Balrog was the name of uh, Vega the Claw, uh, the Spanish Claw Fighter, and they renamed him to Vega. And then M, uh, M- Mike Bison became Balrog. In so they US. kind of they kind of shifted all of those names, and they basically kind of removed Mike from Street Fighter One and just said that yeah he's he's a he's a separate character named Mike. It's, his name is not Mike. He does not have a last car- uh, last name as far as anyone knows. Uh, <laughs> so he's not real uh, basically. And then they said like yeah these are the characters now. And then I think for for I think still like those characters in terms of like people who play these games seriously, it, it is they call those characters dictator, claw, and boxer just to not just to have like neutral names for those characters. And I want to I recently heard that they even refer to Sagat as like shorts because like huh. that's like the even though he his name is Sagat in both regions that they just call the character shorts because they had just gotten used to like calling these characters one one name descriptors. Uh, so that, so yeah, it kind of led to a lot of confusion and, and people having to figure out what, what character the people were talking about. Yeah. It, it's funny though, because, well, I mean, it was probably a smart move because I don't know if you've been keeping up with Mike Tyson on social media lately. 
he is waging war against Hulu for the show that they put on. I guess it's like an unauthorized uh, biography show or like a, a an unauthorized like adaptation of his life. And boy, is he not happy about it. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it was a smart move to change uh, M. Bison to be the dictator instead of the boxer that, you know, they obviously were kind of paying homage or copying Mike Tyson's kind of persona for that. Um, yeah. But, but going back to kind of the impact of Street Fighter 2, we're going to reference Matt Leone's uh, oral history of Street Fighter 2 on Polygon again here. Uh, the game was not immediately successful because most players were playing it single player, which I found very interesting. It wasn't until Capcom started advertising a battle play feature that the game really took off. And it actually went on to become the highest grossing arcade game of 1991 and 1992 in Japan. And then subsequent versions of Street Fighter 2 took home that title in 1993. And it was also the highest grossing arcade machine in the U.S. in 1991 and then made the top five in 92. And then by 1992, it was the best-selling arcade game of the last 10 years. And I think that Street Fighter 2's biggest legacy was probably how it impacted arcade culture. Are you able to talk a little bit about like kind of the culture that developed around these games in uh, in the early to mid-90s? Yeah, so it basically, uh, I wouldn't say created, but it definitely popularized the idea of people going to an arcade to do, to play games competitively. Uh, I think a lot of video game tournaments were, before then, were basically score-based, happened maybe every once in a while, and it was like this big kind of like sponsored competition type thing where it's like, hey, we're going to have the World Championship of Video Games, and it's just like, how, who can play, you know, like Wizard-esque, like who can play through Mario 3 the best, right? There wasn't a lot of direct competition um, but something like Street Fighter, where you that was the whole point, and people would just crowd arcades. And I think that ended up being the, like, um, I think Street Fighter has had a lot of cultural impact, but I think a lot of people who remember Street Fighter may not have even played it. They may have just remembered, like, hey, that was the machine that was always really crowded, even if you were someone who was playing something else. You remember how packed those arcades were uh, and how, like, much of a mainstay they became for, like, years and years after. Like, even I had, like, my group of friends or like my cousins when we were young we would go to arcades and like this was around the time when like street fighter versus uh x-men was was popular but we it was still kind of an implied thing where it's like you're gonna go you're gonna play with your friends you're gonna see who which one of you is the best and then and it's gonna be like these three fighting game machines are gonna be the ones that everyone is here for and then if you get knocked out or you just don't care about competition you go play bubble bobble or like something else and that that ended up populating other arcade machines because it was like well you can only have two people at a time and there are only so many machines so it not only invented like the idea of like let's have competition let's evolve that into tournaments and see who the best in an area was but it also kind of uplifted all arcade culture along with it uh by making it by making other machines more popular it absolutely did and like it was just unbelievable how successful street fighter 2 was in arcades and like how it was it became a destination because of it and I was looking it up, like I was kind of reading up on some like old articles about it, and it's all that it made more money than Jurassic Park did in theaters in 1993. Yeah, the the, the origin of the like video games are bigger than movies, or like those articles <laughs> that you read all the time. And then in '94, Capcom referred to it as the most successful video game series of the decade. And then in 1995, uh, the magazine Game Fan reported that Street Fighter had made billions of dollars in profit. Which you know that's that's a lot of a lot more money back then than it is now, but still a billion dollars is a lot of money. Um, yeah. 
And then Street Fighter 2 also put out several versions, in case you haven't heard, Suriel. Yeah, that that was the other thing they innovated is like the, the first like updates and basically patch notes for for games like this. Yeah, so we got World Warrior in 1991, Champion Edition, which balanced the original eight characters, enabled mirror matches, and then made the four boss characters playable, came in 92. Turbo hit that same year uh, in 92, adding faster game speed, more balancing, and some new special moves. Super uh, came out in 93, further balancing the roster, adding four new playable characters, DJ, T-Hawk, Fei Long, and uh, Kami. And then we finally got Super Turbo, which added air combos and super combos, plus gave us Akuma. And uh, want to know something all of those have in common? They They're all still... reached number one on the arcade charts in both the U.S. and Japan, plus several of them hit number one in other territories that were tracking them at the time. So, yeah, and, and it should be noted that these, these were all like it wasn't like these weren't expansion packs to the original game. These weren't updates. They were they just released the games for like full price again. Yeah. So you if you want if you were playing like hyper fighting and wanted to play Turbo, you'd have to spend an an additional like sixty seventy dollars just to play the new version, and people did. They, yeah. Do you remember which one you ended up playing in the arcades the most? It was it was probably the original and then pro and then Super Turbo. I I would imagine because um, I remember like there being two different versions, and I remember uh one of them being like this is the good version but yeah i I don't know how much i i i don't think i would have been like um enough of a consumer to say like oh this is clearly this version right uh but yeah i definitely remember there being a ton of different versions of this game yeah i remember i think it was champion edition i played first and i was like oh this is awesome and then my arcade my local arcade refreshed its cabinet and like you know they kept i think champion edition there but then super popped up and i was like what is this and i started playing and i'm like oh there's there's new characters and also i think that was the one that ken kind of got like the flaming dragon punch mm. and i was like oh that's amazing <laughs> yeah but uh that... you, you had mentioned this like with like the cartridges and everything uh we also got all those different versions as home releases as well so we got world warrior turbo and super for snes Special Champion Edition for Genesis, and then Street Fighter 2 also appeared on Game Boy, while Super Turbo Revival also came out. And uh, did you? Which one of these did you own? Uh, I think I. Well, so I have a weird story in that, like, my first version of Street Fighter 2 in, in the home was actually like. Um, so growing up, I had. Uh, I lived uh, above a like corner store in Mexico, right? So they we had a Mortal Kombat machine in there, and so I played a lot of Mortal Kombat, but I wasn't allowed to play it after the store closed. So at one point, I think we hit up like a, a flea market to buy a Super Nintendo cartridge of Mortal Kombat Two, but it turned out it was actually it, it was like all the patching, all the packaging said Mortal Kombat, but when we got in, when we actually fired up the game, it was Street Fighter Two. Whoa! So my so my first version <laughs> of Street, like my introduction of to Street Fighter was through Mortal Kombat. Uh, so it was like a weird, and then I was discovered like, oh, this is a thing. This is the other big fighting game franchise that people play in arcades. Uh, and so, but like my introduction was like, wait, this isn't Mortal Kombat. So I, I, I always thought of like for for a little while, I thought of Street Fighter as the Mortal Kombat knockoff, <laughs> uh, which is which is the exact opposite of what it actually is. But uh, 
I don't know what version of that it was because it wasn't an actual it wasn't like an officially licensed version wow yeah i had turbo on my snes and that was the one that i just absolutely played to death but i remember specifically going to the store to rent super uh, super on snes and being like oh my god there's four new characters and it's like looking back it's like i should have rented a game that i didn't already own like i knew it was a newer version of that game but like i should have just rented like mortal kombat 2 which i'm sure i did several times but like yeah, that was such a weird time of like, oh yeah, there's a new Street Fighter 2 version. I got to go spend money to take that home for the weekend. Yeah, and I, I don't know that I kept up with like individual, like I didn't see a lot of game coverage when I was a kid. It was mostly like, oh, we went to the arcade and there's a new version there now. Or or like, hey, this is late enough to where, oh, like Street Fighter's old, like kind of old hat. There's like new ones, you know, this is around the PlayStation era where there's like, hey, they're mixing Street Fighter with X-Men. That, that's got to be better uh, <laughs> and playing those. But like Street Fighter 2, I think basically maintained a, a pretty strong audience. Uh, for most of its lifespan and it still does to this day and capcom knows it because they've released these games over and over and over again with even some few new versions in the years since the game's like standard lifespan so i'm looking down the list here we got hyper street fighter 2 the anniversary edition on ps2 and that was basically a mod of super turbo that included all the various arcade versions built in you could choose which version you wanted to play super street fighter 2 hd remix came to ps3 and xbox 360 and i mean absolutely gorgeous hd graphics drawn by udon entertainment plus some remixed music and then just a few years ago we got ultra street fighter 2 the final challengers exclusively on switch that gave us evil ryu and violent ken as playable characters and then a new first person mode called way of the hado which i believe from your review on gameinformer.com sucks awful mode awful mode terrible <laughs> they should have they should have done something else they should have but that was that that is the weird thing is that like that game was 40 dollars on switch for just one version of that game and they just added two new characters who were completely busted and no one played like that version is not at all the standard for anything uh but it was interesting to see like here's ken with a, like a super overpowered role and I, I want to say that their like their initial marketing for those two characters were like hey we want new we want new players to kind of ease into the game by by playing these characters which is like short for these characters are ridiculously overpowered and we want players playing the new characters to win um <laughs> but yeah like like even that version i remember saying like the street fighter 2 is still a really really good game it's just like this is a really bad version of it um but it's still good enough because it's like the core of street fighter 2 is is hard to get wrong which version if you have to play a street fighter 2 today which version are you firing up I would probably say the the one on the 30th anniversary because that's like the most easily accessible one for me. Um, and I would probably play Super Turbo because I think that one's the most kind of well-rounded. And it, it, it's the one that's kind of maintained the most kind of competitive attention. I think there are still tournaments for that version of it specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, it feels like that's the one that kind of endured. But I think that there's, you know, you I think like even the hardcore fans will make a, a case for all of their versions. And I'm with you with Super Turbo. I think that's awesome. I think the HD remix was really great as well. Like, that was absolutely beautiful. I wish we could get that ported over to modern systems because it's been, I think it's been locked behind other, I mean, I think you can play it actually on PlayStation Plus. Like, if you have, like, the new, like, subscription where you can do cloud gaming, you could do a cloud version of Super Turbo HD remix, which is not great because of the latency. He just makes it. I mean, if you're playing it online, you're already going to have some input lag. Add to it the fact that it's a cloud version and it's just going to make it even worse. 
But uh, if you're wondering how Game Informer has ranked Street Fighter 2 over the years, back in 2018 when we released our 300th issue, we did a top 300 games of all time. We called Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo the 14th greatest game of all time. And our readers, we did a reader vote. Uh, Street Fighter 2, it just in general, was given the 117th greatest game of all time. And then when we did our list of the top 30 fighting games of all time in 2019, which I believe you headed up. Yeah. Uh, we called Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo the third greatest fighting game ever released. And we'll get into the pick for the top slot in a little bit here, Suriel. But first, before we got to those games, Capcom actually took a short break with the numbered entries following that initial release of Street Fighter 2. So we got Street Fighter Alpha, which is a, a trilogy. Um, it was comprised of three games hitting 95, 96, and 98. And then these games are set between Street Fighter 1 and Street Fighter 2. So a lot of returning characters from 2 are actually younger versions of those characters. And it also introduced us to characters like Rose, Charlie, Sakura, and Armika. And then, I mean, I played Alpha 3 so much on the PS1. I think I finished every single character's story, which took a lot of time because I think that game included like 34 characters. And at the time, I remember thinking, like, there's no way we will ever see more characters than this in a uh, fighting game. Like, it was a wild roster at the time. Yeah. It, the, the, the Alpha series was definitely them kind of holding off on creating a sequel to Street Fighter 2 because I think the expectations were so big uh, for Street Fighter 3 that it would have to be, like, it, it almost became, like, a very short version of, like, the Duke Nukem thing of, like, well, like, if we release it now, it's not going to be as big as 2, and we need, we need, we need something, this needs to be, like, the next level up, and I think in the meantime, they just kind of, they basically screwed around for the entire PlayStation generation with, you know, the entire Alpha series and also Darkstalkers, and then it was also the around the time that they started doing all the crossover games and the Marvel games, and so, like, this was them just putting off Street Fighter 3, and then we got two like we got one good game and and like two amazing games out of it so are you saying alpha 2 and alpha 3 is the amazing games yeah in, in terms of street fighter I, I also like vampire savior a whole lot but um two and three i think are are hold their own is like some of the best street fighter games i would agree and also like the alpha series revamped the super combo system turning it into a three-tiered gauge system um is there anything else you'd like to call out about the Alpha series? We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it because I'd like to focus on like the mainline entries here, but I think it was worth mentioning. That's definitely like the game where you started seeing more of the lore come oh, to the sure. forefront, where it's like, oh, Ro like Rose is like the you know, this is basically this offspring of Bison, who is like this bot, the backup body for Bison, basically. And you, you like you know, Sakura has this whole thing where he has like where she has a sort of crush on Ryu, but also wants to be mentored by him. Uh, there's like the whole drama between Sakura and, and uh, Karen or Karine, um, and like all these characters now started having more explicit backstories. Um, and you know some interesting ideas came in from there. So like uh, Zangief got his like green hand thing, where he does like the the, the back fist with like this glowing green hand. I, I believe it started in the Alpha series. Um, so that that game was definitely like more uh, kind of inspired by like anime and storytelling, both in the graphics and the storytelling department. But and like yeah, th those grooves and stuff, like air combos, air blocking. I think a lot of like they were experimenting with a lot of different concepts and ended up getting pretty popular. Yeah. And some of them stuck throughout the, all the subsequent games, um, just because this is a Nintendo podcast. Wanted to focus it back to see like alpha one didn't come to any Nintendo consoles. It did hit game boy color in 2000. Uh, alpha two came to SNES in 96 
and then Alpha 3 skipped Nintendo consoles in favor of a Game Boy Advance release. And it has since appeared, all of them have since appeared on Switch through the 30th anniversary compilation. Getting to another spinoff here, um, the series, like, you know, it's it's known as the pinnacle of the 2D fighting genre. And you had mentioned this earlier in the show. There was kind of like this 3D excitement of the late 90s. And Street Fighter was definitely not immune to it because we got the Street Fighter EX series in arcades and on PlayStation consoles. And again, don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this spinoff series, but I think a lot of people were underwhelmed by the series once they got past kind of like the shininess of the graphics. Yeah, that the the it was also interesting because I, I don't think Capcom ever was in a position to really invest too much in the EX series because a lot of the designs for those characters were made by Eureka, which is a third-party company, mm-hmm. and they still own all of those designs, which is they made their own uh, fighting game basically using just those characters uh, later on like I, th- I think it was like 2018 2019 that they released their own game with those characters oh, um, wow. so, it de- I so, it de- so it definitely felt like uh, Capcom was kind of doing this to, to cash in on the 3D craze but meanwhile they were still more invested in the 2D thing um, but yeah those EX games were okay um, I think they definitely have their fans and I, I think a lot of those Arika characters do have a lot of fans but it definitely never took off the way street fighter 2 did but before we move on i do want to point out that the street fighter alpha 2 uh poster i think is one of the more iconic fighting game bits of promotional art where you have ryu staring down akuma oh yeah much taller than him i think that that poster has been replicated in a lot of different you know like retro kind of off like faux retro games as being like this really impactful piece of promotional art that i think uh really helps sell the game yeah, that, that art, I remember seeing that and being like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Street Fighter always had really great art, like promo art. Yeah, Aki Man definitely like helping out with a lot of that art and, and making it like, I, I you remember a lot of games just because of the art style of those promotional bits for sure. I remember I had like a really thick strategy guide for Street Fighter 2. And it like, I feel like in between every character's like strategy guide uh, individually, like they'd have like two to four pages on every character there was an amazing spread that had just like incredible art. And I'm like, God, I could just stare at this all day. Uh, I wish I had that strategy guide still, but um, yeah, like you had mentioned EX introduced a ton of new characters and we never heard from any of them again, as far as the street fighter series is concerned. Uh, I never spent like a ton of time with EX, but I do remember like I went to my local KB toys and they had it set up for demos. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is incredible. Look at those graphics. This, this is amazing. And, uh, and then I played it and I was like, I don't know. I kind of like just the old school style of fighting. Um, yeah. But I did find an article of Next Generation magazine saying that it was originally supposed to come to Nintendo 64, but that version was canceled. So Nintendo fans kind of missed out on it altogether. But before yeah. we move on from EX, is there anything else we need to say about this? Uh, not a ton. I don't have a, a ton of experience, but I know that people do like those games, but definitely did not have the cultural impact of any of the other Street Fighter games. And then the last one we're not going to do a real deep dive on, uh, but around this time, Capcom seemed to realize the staying power and popularity of the Street Fighter series because it began leveraging them in Marvel and then other publisher crossover fighting games. So we had X-Men vs. Street Fighter, Marvel vs. Street Fighter, Marvel vs. Capcom, Capcom vs. SNK, Tatsunoko vs. Capcom, Street Fighter Cross Tekken. The list just keeps going on and on and on. We still get crossover games to this day. And the characters still show up on everything from Power Rangers Battle for the Grid and Super Smash Brothers. 
And there have always been rumors about like a Street Fighter versus Mortal Kombat. And Mortal Kombat co-creator Ed Boon just in June actually tweeted that he has a ton of stories about ways in which he has tried to make that crossover a reality. And then in the past, he has said that like fatalities and kind of the gory nature of Mortal Kombat has been the main deterrent for a lot of crossovers, the Street Fighter brand included. And I don't know, I always hold out hope that we get that crossover one day. But is, do you think that's like the dream Street Fighter crossover? It's definitely my dream Street Fighter crossover. And I definitely think that I know that there was like some negative reception to um, Mortal Kombat versus DC heroes because of like, oh, it's a team rated game doesn't have fatalities. This isn't Mortal Kombat. But I feel I still feel like you could do Mortal Kombat without the, like the over the top violence. Like I still think that, you know, especially in the wake of there being characters like Snake and, uh, you know, the Doom guy in Smash Brothers, you could put Scorpion, you could put like a, a sterilized kind of version of Scorpion in there uh, and kind of convince Nintendo to, to or like a Japanese company uh, like Capcom or Nintendo to, to play ball. If you just say like, yeah, he's not going to be tearing anyone's head off. Um, but I would definitely love to see it. I just don't know. I just don't know how that game plays. Cause I feel like the, the two styles of play between Mortal Kombat, especially now and street fighter feel a little bit incompatible, but I would, I still would love for them to try. Would they have to do it like a street fighter cross Tekken where it's like, all right, we're just going to put these characters in a, a game that vaguely plays like street fighter. Yeah, I and I think art style is going to be another thing because those two, those two styles are so kind of different mm-hmm. um, in terms of aesthetics. They'd have to find an art style that kind of appeases both. And at this point, it just feels like, well, you just make it look like the Fortnite thing where it's like everyone just looks like sort of cell shaded, but like, you know, kind of simplified cartoony versions uh, of themselves. And then at that point, you're kind of uh, changing the the vibe of that game. But I would, yeah, I still would love to see Mortal Kombat versus Street Fighter in some form. I just don't know how that form looks. For sure. Well, Suriel, at long last, we finally got Street Fighter 3 in 1997. And that game brought the series back to its 2D roots uh, with super detailed sprites and animations and more grounded than like the EX series or the crossover games. They kind of departed from that a little bit. Street Fighter 3 New Generation got rid of the entire existing cast aside from Ryu and Ken and then gave us characters like Alex, Gil, Ibuki, Oro, and Dudley. And I don't know about you, but when I heard that news that like the entire cast was going to be new, as a kid, I was not super thrilled. And in fact, it turned me off so much that I decided to skip Street Fighter 3 altogether when I was a kid, despite being like a big Dreamcast fan. Yeah, and it uh, turns out you were not alone because uh, that uh, the Street Fighter 3 series did not do super well, uh, especially that, that first one was also not great. It was okay, but it definitely was not like as refined as Street Fighter 2 was even. It. Well, there was also like you're comparing – um, a new version of a new franchise with like a ton of system changes that there people were still feeling out versus something that had been refined over several iterations, right? Like you're you were comparing Street Fighter three not to Street Fighter two's original version, but to like Street Fighter two Turbo, which is you know had been making improvements and refinements over the years, mm-hmm. and people were just, were just not super into all of the changes. The roster changes were definitely like really divisive, and a lot of the new characters seemed very like. It, they seem to very like 2000s and I think in a way uh, even though I'm nostalgic for that aesthetic like they seem to very like now if there was like here's a character who's like a streamer or whatever right very like uh, this is a little too current whereas Street Fighter 2's you know World Warrior stick 
um, as much as it kind of leans into stereotypes, it had a universality versus this is way more specific. Like Remy is a French uh, like kind of fighter, but he's not like, you know, throwing baguettes at people or whatever. He's more like about the underground kind of music scene in France. Mm. Um, so they, they were more specific and they had characters like 12 who were just like, this is not, this, this is not a world warrior. This is just something out of a lab. Um, so it definitely did not come out of the gate strong at all. But just like Street Fighter 2, we got a couple of updated versions of Street Fighter 3. We got Second Impact just a few months after the first version of New Generation. And that added new characters and some EX specials. And then in 99, two years later, we got the game I believe that you consider to be the greatest fighting game of all time. We certainly called it that in the 30 fighting games list that you worked on back in 2019. Street Fighter 3 Third Strike. Talk to me about why this is like the best of the best. I mean, for one, it, like they, they were making moves. Like they they added Chun Li and Ken by this point, um, and Akuma. So they were kind of trying to appease fans with some of the the classic characters. Uh, they refined a lot of the systems. They like they finally got got them to a place where they they kind of knew what they wanted to do with the parry system, which is like the big innovation. Where if you press forward instead of back at the right time, like if you you had to time it pretty correctly, um, you could parry the attack and basically get get the advantage on someone who was attacking you. Um, and also like I, I like they the, the hard and this this allowed like the the system changes kind of allowed them to kind of the the visual changes to really shine like this is one of the best 2d animations still even like oh, it's in gorgeous terms of, in terms of how it looks obviously it's still sprite based so it does like if you blow it up on a giant monitor it still looks kind of blurry but the actual motions and how those characters flow look in like incredible still um and it just looks fantastic i think the, the soundtrack is absolutely killer but like it was really yeah the, the gameplay ended up being the kind of like endlessly repeatable and really refined uh gameplay that ended up being like so like i think this if if i were going to play or like ha- have a fighting game kind of get a resurgence and have it be the thing that people play it, I, I i would still choose this one because i think it looks the best it's still like i I still really like the way it looks and yeah, a lot of the audiovisual stuff I think here is top notch and I, I like the way the game plays. I like the way you can cancel stuff. It seems like a really cool, it, it is like a really cool um, kind of midway between like Street Fighter 2 kind of like more emphasis on straight hits uh, mixed with something like Alpha's more combo centric stuff where you, you were kind of just like looking for like five hit combos at, at the most um, when you get a straight hit and a lot of them it's just like a lot of like the the high level play is just like can i look for one thing and then like get one attack in and then do a super which is like this really cool mix of reaction times and execution um and just yeah i think it added a couple things that i think other fighting games had innovated into the 2d games so like tekken had two button throws uh where instead of pressing forward and heavy um in street fighter 2 you just press two button throws mm-hmm. uh you you press the light kick and attack and that kind of made throws a little bit more accessible um and like yeah the super canceling stuff i think is is really well executed and i think that that game just has a depth to it that um works really well so like fireballs for example are easy to parry but you can kind of use them as like because they're kind of slower than in other games you can fire a fireball and then dash in front of it and kind of use it as like an additional kind of pressure tool to to make sure that your opponent has to block and then maybe you throw them or you hit them with an overhead and so like they found ways to make its parry system work and turn into a very different kind of street fighter and it's so interesting because it does all these things dashes retreats super jumps quick stands leap attacks parrying super arts 
But when the game came out, like you had indicated before, all of the articles and reviews weren't super hyped about it. But then in retrospect, many echo your sentiment that it's maybe the best fighting game of all time. It's it's just wild to see how kind of like the tide has has turned the other way. Yeah, it, it was also um, if you think about the context of when that game came out, it was at the height of like the crossover stuff. Mm. So like Marvel's Capcom 2 was really popular. Capcom versus SNK2, I think, released around the same time and was also really popular. So it was a combination of all of these games are crowding the market a little bit. And this doesn't like because it's not as like over the top as something like Street Fighter Alpha or the Marvel series or Capcom versus SNK. It just felt a little bit like. This doesn't feel like as grandiose as a lot of other fighting games coming out at the time. Like, why would you play the the new Street Fighter game, which just has Street Fighter characters, and then, like the fireballs are only so big versus something like Marvel versus Capcom 2, where I can play with six characters and the fireballs are super big, and like there it has all the like you you use a super and it turns the fireball into a giant laser. Like, why would I play the more kind of uh, kind of grounded thing when there's this over the top version that is flashier uh and so i think a lot of people just kind of said like this isn't this doesn't feel like the kind this doesn't feel like it's forwarding the genre in the same way that the crossover stuff was but i think after kind of fighting game like there was a definitely like a bust uh for like especially the 2d stuff where it's just like new games just stopped coming out because there were too many games coming out and so they overcrowded the market and capcom shifted away from fighting games and i think in the wake of that dust people just you know, as time went on, people started going back to Street Fighter 3. And I think the competitive community had a lot uh, to do with that, where it's like, no, this is the one that I, we end up taking the most seriously because it seems like the most refined. And that ended up being kind of the staying that would allowed Street Fighter 3 to have that staying power was the fact that, like, uh, a lot of people are dropping, like, Marvel vs. Capcom 2, Capcom vs. SNK 3, I think are still were still really popular around this time. But then, like, people were kind of staying with Street Fighter 3 because they liked playing it. And so, like, that game just kind of stuck around in a way and they just kind of ended up developing this reputation as like, this is the street fighter that we play now. Uh, even though like street fighter two was still getting played. It was like, this is, this is just as good. This is, uh, this is as well refined and we think as interesting as any other game before it. And so it just, it stuck around long enough for it to create this legacy. And I still think it, yeah, it ends up being the most straight fighter, the most fun street fighter, uh, to play for me personally. And you mentioned like the move away from these 2D fighting games, like the crossover games continued because they were still like raking in the attention and the the money because, you know, throwing Marvel characters on there and everything. This was around the time that the Spider-Man movies, the the Raimi trilogy was kind of blowing up. The X-Men movies were blowing up. So like we had Spider-Man and Wolverine on the covers of those. So like that was obviously getting some attention. And then we were a few years away from like the MCU getting founded. But like, about a near like about a decade of absence was for like the mainline street fighter uh series and then it returned in 2008 with street fighter 4 as a 2d game and that game hit arcades uh that year and then ps3 xbox 360 and pc versions followed the following year in 20 or 2009 and uh yoshinori oh or geez yoshinori ono there we go let's try that uh <laughs> he produced street fighter 4 and 5 but he said he, he wanted to uh, four to veer closer to the gameplay of two and then it ended up being more of a hybrid of super street fighter 2 turbo and street fighter 3 third strike with how it ended up playing and then it also gave us fully rendered 3d models and backgrounds but the game had a ton of new features and special moves plus several new characters and included a ton of classic characters 
And then four also included or introduced focused attacks and ultra moves. And then Game Informer gave Street Fighter 4 a 9.25 out of 10 when it came to consoles, which how do you look back at that original Street Fighter 4 when it when it hit consoles and arcades? It definitely felt like a moment um, in the way that Street Fighter 2 sort of did, because I think that brought back a, a lot of people out of the woodwork. It'd been long enough, you know, it, especially for people who kind of didn't stick with the genre. It felt like, oh, the Street Fighter 2 came out and then, oh, yeah, years later, that that game from when I was a kid is back. Um, and it just basically revitalized a lot of the fighting game community around like this was when, you know, they, Mad Cats released an arcade stick um, controller, which you, you saw definitely before Street Fighter 4, but not like those sold out so quickly and became it became such a thing to buy an arcade stick for this game mm-hmm. um, that it basically revitalized people and people started going to tournaments again. Uh, you know, it basically brought back a lot of interest in people attending their like their local tournaments and, th- and stuff. And the game itself had like it had basically as much as you could want. It had online play for the first time, which I think a lot of um, you know, basically no Street Fighter game had had. And so like that, uh, that allowed its own community to form. Um, and yeah, they, they did they did right by the series by saying like, hey, all your favorite characters are back and there's also some new ones and we're going to mix and match kind of like the favorites because in like subsequent updates, um, they added characters from Third Strike, the, the more popular ones. Um, and then they added new characters and they just kept bringing back characters from older games. And so, and it like the game looked really cool, you know, and that game I think came out of the gate stronger than I think any other Street Fighter game because like Street Fighter 4 was a pretty well balanced game. It obviously had like egregiously overpowered characters, but mm. it felt more tame Seth. than something. Yeah, like <laughs> Seth was ridiculous in the first version for sure, and Sagat was also, but um, it felt like stronger out of the gate where it feels like you could still play this and not feel like you were like you were leaving behind something more refined to play this. And then over subsequent versions, they just made it better and more balanced. And like at that time, 3D fighters and crossover games were like getting the vast majority of the attention. Like look at Mortal Kombat's two most recent entries to that point. It was Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe, which is both 3D and a crossover. And then Mortal Kombat Armageddon. And then just three years after Street Fighter 4, Mortal Kombat made the, the move back to 2D with Mortal Kombat 2011. Yeah, and if like this was definitely like the 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 crash kind of hit two DMs pretty hard, but three games were still going. Like Dead or Alive basically happened between those two crashes, and mm-hmm. so did, and Tekken was still pumping out regular entries, and so was Soul Calibur. So like all those games are still doing really well, which made Street uh, Capcom's move to say like no Street Fighter two Street Fighter four is going to be a two D game. Uh, definitely was like a weird decision for them to make at the time, but it ended up being the right move uh, for them, especially like. I had heard stories that like they kind of basically reworked the entire hit detection system right before the game came out, where before it was like, here's a 3D model of the character that, and that's how we're going to base our hit detection on. And then they eventually just swapped it uh, for like, instead of having a, like an actual 3D model with 3D physics, like determining how the hitboxes, they just basically had this 3D model, but then they overlaid like a 2D hitbox on top of them. That's so and smart. That, and like they did, like they, I want to say there was like a, a test version or a preview version of the game that had the original um, kind of hit system. And people were like, I don't know about this Street Fighter. I don't know about Street Fighter 4. And then they swapped it out, like, you know, not too long before release. And it just completely changed, like, the reception of that game to where, yeah, it basically revitalized an entire genre again. Marvel versus Capcom, what if? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's season two of Marvel's What If, is what if Capcom oh, didn't swap out the hitboxes in Street Fighter 4? Would we have Mortal Kombat as it exists today? 
Yeah, that I think I want to say that Edmund's been say, had said that like we were looking at going back to 2D around the time Street Fighter 4 released, but their decision to go 2D and having it be so successful kind of cemented their decision that we needed to we need to go back to 2D. I think I've heard and that, that as well. Yeah, and that basically brought back every other fighting game. You know, like we saw a new Marvel versus Capcom. We saw like more like Tekken ended up getting more popular. Like just just by. Um, virtue of of street fighter being more popular a bunch of other fighting games got made like blaze blue was around that time and that probably would have happened but i think blaze blue ended up getting a little bit of a lift from people just being into 2d fighting games in general it's almost like a parallel that you were drawing uh between what street fighter 2 did in the arcades where people would come in and they'd be like oh well let me check out these other things while i'm here this got people interested in fighting games in a way maybe they weren't before. And then they're like, oh, what other fighting games are out there? So it kind of gave that shot in the arm to the genre that it was, I mean, that was the, the 3D was still going, the crossovers were still going, but it wasn't like, it didn't feel like the genre that it is today by any stretch. Yeah, it also coincided with the uh, uh, the kind of rise in prominence of streaming. Oh, yeah. Um, where uh, I want to say 2008 was the first evo that you could watch and then i watched the 2009 finals and that was like the big like daigo versus justin match that i watched on like some uh, on justin tv <laughs> uh not twitch tv but uh ended up watching those live and being like oh man like just being able to watch people who are who, who know uh so much about the game and are way better than i am like this is really intense to watch and i love watching it and like I had watched competitive fighting games before, you know, like I basically spent an entire semester in my computer lab just watching Capcom versus SNK2 and Street Fighter 3 matches uh, instead of actually doing any homework. Um, so I, I definitely already had that kind of like uh, predilection towards like, I want to watch really good players play against each other. But like Street Fighter 4, just like the, the live of like, you don't know what's going to happen in this match and having it having there be commentary and them treating it like an actual sport, I think also helped kind of foster a community of viewers and like fans who were like, oh, I remember Street Fighter 2 back in the day, but I'm not going to compete. But I can watch Justin and Daigo uh, and I can watch them play, you know, here's Balrog against Ryu. And that's a match that I want to see. Right. And that ended up that ended up helping build these communities uh, beyond like, oh, here's a bunch of people who just kind of gather at the local and play Street Fighter and have, have letting it be something that you're a fan of, even if you don't play. Yeah. And before we wrap up on Street Fighter 4. Uh, we did get some subsequent versions introduced even more improvements. So we had Super Street Fighter 4 in 2010, Arcade Edition that same year. 3D Edition came to 3DS in 2011. And then Ultra Street Fighter 4, which could also be bought as a DLC upgrade to Arcade Edition, arrived in 2014. And I'm actually in the camp of thinking Ultra Street Fighter 4 might be the best game in the series. I think that like I had a really great time with that. I think it has an incredible roster new stages yeah. different announcer and then balanced everything pretty much flawlessly yeah i think it, among the competitive crowd i think for the casual people I, I you definitely see that that game getting more refined and adding more characters and more interesting mechanics um the, the like the competitive history of that game is kind of like uh kind of boomer bust because i think people thought super street fighter 2 or super street fighter 4 was really well balanced and then they added arcade edition which introduced young and yang which were like some of the most powerful characters they've ever had in a street mm -hmm. fighter game so it was just completely busted you saw so many people like daigo switching to young just because like well this is the best character in the game by far like there's it's not even close um and then they they patched it without releasing content in i think 2012 and that kind of was like okay this version is actually real well balanced and then they added ultra uh, which added a bunch of characters from Cross Tekken, actually. Like, Hugo and Poison were originally in Cross Tekken and not Street Fighter. Um, 
but they added them back into Street Fighter Four uh, in Ultra, and I, and they also added Elena and Elena like Ultra Street Fighter competitively is remembered as like the Elena uh, version because Elena had this ability to heal, which really prolonged matches and made them boring to watch uh, and hard to play against. But it, like in terms of content, like that game is still pretty well balanced and interesting. And you had like the version select and yeah, being able to choose both ultras. That game, that game had fleshed out its content really well in a way that I think uh, helped it kind of cement it as like, yeah, this is the final version. This is the most content rich version of the game. And, and it's still really well put together. I'll still fire that up sometimes. I have uh, it's backward compatible on Xbox, and there's also a PlayStation Four version. So, like, I what you can't buy Ultra Street Fighter Four on Xbox, but you can buy Street Fighter Four Arcade Edition and then buy the DLC, right. and that'll make it so that you can play it backwards compatible on Xbox One and Xbox Series X. But uh, we won't spend a ton of time on this last game, which is Street Fighter Five, since it was a PlayStation exclusive and it wasn't nearly as impactful as Street Fighter 4 in the grand scheme of the fighting genre, but I did want to touch on it before we wrap up here. Uh, so Street Fighter 5 came out in 2016, and the mechanics were great. Uh, it introduced critical arts and the V-Gage, but there was so little content at launch, and it was still like the 2D fighting style that Street Fighter 4 brought back into fashion. There were only 16 characters at launch. It's the same thing that you were talking about with Street Fighter 3, where it's like, all right, you're coming off of Super Turbo, where everybody was all hyped about like all the improvements Street Fighter 2 had had, but now we're kind of back to square one with this new game. So it felt like this huge downgrade from Ultra Street Fighter 4. And then there were so few modes at launch that it kind of felt bare bones. Like, And then on top of all that, Capcom promised players they could earn DLC characters or buy them. But the system felt like so convoluted with like fight money and everything that players just kind of like rebelled against it. How it was did a you huge grind? Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about Street Fighter Five when it was launched? Like I remember like being kind of burned by it. Yeah, I think I I think to me as someone by then who was mostly into the genre for like the multiplayer aspect, I didn't have as big a problem with it as I think a lot of people. But I totally understand the idea of there not being an arcade mode. There was like this really bad survival mode in it mm-hmm. um, that wasn't good, um, and like having sixteen characters was like solid but not a great launch roster. Um, there was also just a lot of like the game felt. Um, a little too simple like the the v trigger and v uh, skill stuff was interesting but most characters just felt like they had very very kind of flat game plans for how they wanted to approach matches um so it, it seemed a little simple i liked a lot of the characters i think i had more like a lot of the changes they made to characters like dalsem and sangief and and like um the return of characters like armika i thought was really cool so mm-hmm. i really liked it from the outset but it was hard for me to recommend it because there was like if you weren't just not someone who plays fighting games outside of competitively it just wasn't going to do anything for you um and it definitely took a while for them to get there where like now i i have no hesitation about recommending street fighter 5 as like one of the is like the street fighter if you're excited for six you should definitely play five because it has a like looking at trailers for six it definitely feels like they're building on five um more so than any street fighter game has built upon kind of its previous uh version um but yeah it definitely felt like uh street fighter it was like the first kind of misstep after four um and people were just like not uh interested in it but that actually ended up having a huge impact on the street fighter on the fighting game community overall because like the people who were disappointed by five ended up migrating to other games and mm-hmm. you definitely saw like 
in the in the wake of Street Fighter Five kind of falling by the wayside. Uh, well, which is which is like you know kind of unfair because it is it is still one of the most popular fighting games, but it it like the lead definitely uh, fell a lot, and so you saw games like Tekken, like Guilty Gear, pick up in its wake, and now like a lot of other fighting games have much larger communities that you know people people don't feel as like beholden to Street Fighter as they used to which I think is overall healthier for the fighting game community, but definitely not. It's like, it definitely kind of paved the way for street fighter six to feel like a, a, a game that was on the back foot and definitely has to prove itself. Um, but it seems like yeah, they're making a lot of the right moves, but street fighter five is definitely like a weird kind of like silver lining game where it's like, Oh, well everyone benefited from street fighter fives kind of really rocky start mm-hmm. except for, except for street fighter. Um, but yeah, I think they made a lot of smart moves to kind of get it to where it is now but definitely one of the weakest launches for a game in kind of like modern competitive game history. And I think that Capcom did take some important things from this. Like this was their first time using the game as like a platform Uh, instead of forcing players to buy an all new game. Like with past titles, you could get stuff like a cinematic story mode or training mode or arcade mode and not have to like buy an all new title. And that said, though, we did still get two new versions of the game in Arcade Edition in 2018 and Champion Edition in 2020. But you could also just as easily get that content all the stuff through Steam. Migrated. Like, yeah, if you had unlocked all the characters and stuff with Fight Money, like you didn't have to re-unlock them or anything. Those were those were like DLC packages versus like having to pay seventy dollars for the for a brand new version of the game that you couldn't that wasn't like backwards compatible, right? Like all your account stuff migrated, so it didn't feel like you were losing anything by playing by getting the new version. Yeah, and it adopted like kind of like a seasonal structure for content delivery. We got like six characters per season. And then the fifth and final season recently wrapped up. So I guess like, you know, it's content complete now. They're moving on to Street Fighter Six. Have you gotten your hands on Street Fighter Six yet? I have not. Uh, it was at Evo, but I didn't go to Evo this year. Um, so, but I, I, what I've seen definitely feels like they are taking a lot of the criticisms of Five at launch to heart. Um, like now, Street Fighter Five has all these options, these like universal options to play a little bit more defensively or like you know uh, make a lot of characters more viable. And the the I forget what it's called the system in, in six, but where you have a separate meter for supers and a meter for like doing all these other defensive options definitely feels like out of the gate street fighter five has more variety in terms of what you can do in a match just across all characters which a lot of other games have leaned into of just like the uh like the base system giving individual characters so many more options uh just from the get-go which it leads to like it makes balancing easier because you can kind of account for every character having this specific option and that makes you know that'll make a lot of lower tier characters more viable and more interesting um so they so you like they, they're very upfront about like these are all the things you can do in street fighter 5 throughout the match irrespective of your character and so that like so which is to say like oh the game is not as simple as street fighter 5 was at launch and they're also promising like a fully like open world uh kind of exploration system in the single player which is, you know, the largest single-player investment they've ever made in the, into this franchise, mm-hmm. which is meant to address, like, hey, this game has nothing for single players to do at launch. So, you know, the, like the failure of Street Fighter Five definitely kind of lit a fire on the Street Fighter team to um, kind of deliver. There's also been, you know, Ono, who you mentioned before, he basically left the company towards the end of Street Fighter V's tenure, and now there's like a new kind of head of development team there. And so, like, for the last couple seasons of Street Fighter V and now with Six, it definitely feels like, you know, they 
they're basically changing their approach to how they handle characters and like how they handle content. And so there's definitely a lot more life into in the franchise than there has been in the past, just because like there's there's someone new at the helm and they're again, they're they are poised to want to prove themselves. So they're doing everything they can to kind of appeal to everyone. And they're doing like kind of the similar thing you talked about with Street Fighter Four, where it started treating it like a, a sport with actual commentary. There's commentary in Street Fighter Six, which is really cool. Like it's yeah. awesome how like you can choose who you want on play by play, who you want on color, and then they'll play off each other and react to what you're doing like they would in like a sports video game, which is amazing. Like and it, it works remarkably well, even though the the build that I got my hands on at Summer Game Fest only had uh, play-by-play. There were no color commentators in that game or in that build. So even with the one guy, it sounded really cool and like added a lot to the, the kind of the, the feel of those matches. And of course, you can turn that off if you don't want it. But like, I think that that's a, a cool evolution that's being overlooked by a lot of people in terms of what Street Fighter Six brings to the table and like evolves the genre with. Yeah, I, I hope they do kind of deliver uh, on like a lot of the single player aspects, just because I think that there's a lot of excitement for six. Just because I think people who were who were looking to play a new fighting game and were kind of burned by five, and even though you know Street Fighter Five, I think is a, is a phenomenal game now. I think it definitely like I, I don't you know begrudge people who kind of dismissed it and played something else instead of five. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement, especially now like the fighting game community is bigger than ever and they've kind of seen the, the rise of Guilty Gear and Tekken and now that there's a new Street Fighter game, um, I think a lot of people are really excited about the idea of returning to Street Fighter. So I hope this game really delivers. And I think like they've done some like my one kind of skeptical thing about Street Fighter 6 is that I, I don't know that I like the the actual character models all that much. I think the art hmm. style is really fun, but I think I, I haven't seen it in person. So maybe it's just something different, but seeing like screenshots of Ryu and Chun-Li, it felt like this doesn't have as much personality as I think the other two Street Fighter games have had, especially four, where you look at that, like that paintbrush art style I thought was really distinct. Whereas this looks like what is the best version of Chun-Li we can make in Unreal? So it kind of looks less <laughs> distinct. But I think uh, watching the, the the Evo trailers of Kimberly and Jury, I think, has pushed me more towards the direction of like, oh, no, this game actually looks really cool. And I want to play as all these characters. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to get my hands on it. I hope there's a beta like there was for five, but the game is coming out pretty early next year. So either way, I don't I don't I won't have to wait long. And I, I, I will like sight unseen just play this. Yeah. And unfortunately, like, you know, this is all things Nintendo and it's not coming to switch, which it's a bummer because yeah. new mainline street fighter games have been largely absent from Nintendo consoles since like street fighter two and street fighter alpha two on super Nintendo. We got street fighter four on three DS, but we haven't gotten like a mainline game on a Nintendo console for decades. Yeah. So it, it seems like Nintendo always gets like the, the seconds of like, here's the, you know, here's a version of street fighter four that you can fit. Here's the anniversary collection, which is uh, mostly old games. Yeah, Ultra street fighter um, two. Yeah, so they'll get, like, the anniversaries and the collections and the stuff that is, like, on lower-end hardware. But, yeah, fighting games are surprisingly kind of, like, high for uh, a genre that everyone kind of lauds for their gameplay first and foremost. They are a very, like, uh, like graphics-heavy um, genre. So I think a lot of people, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to port something like Street Fighter VI over to the Switch, um, which is which is unfortunate. Like, I, 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 I kind of like... I. I hope that more fighting games end up on switch cause it's, it's a really accessible platform and like, you know, they put street fighter or they put a Mortal Kombat 11 on, on switch. So maybe they, they should at some point, hopefully make like a reduced resolution version of street fighter six and hopefully let people play that. 
And if Switch owners do want to play any of these games, you can experience the arcade version of Street Fighter, the various versions of Street Fighter 2, all three Street Fighter Alpha games, and all three Street Fighter 3 games in the Street Fighter Anniversary Collection on Switch. You can also play Ultra Street Fighter 2 The Final Challengers on Switch. Unfortunately, Street Fighter 4 is only on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC, although you can play that lesser version on 3DS. And while Street Fighter 5 is only PlayStation and PC, Street Fighter 6 is currently listed for PlayStation, Xbox, and PC. No Switch, unfortunately. We are going to take one last break this episode, and when we get back, we'll be doing a Street Fighter-focused definitive ranking and then getting Suriel's eShop Gem of the Week before we get out of here. We will be right back. We are back and it is time for Definitive Ranking, a recurring segment where we take a Nintendo topic and give our personal top five lists. Since we just celebrated the 35th anniversary of the Street Fighter franchise, Suriel, I want to get your top five Street Fighter characters of all time. So I'm going to have you start with five, count it down to one, give me a quick sentence or two about each. Uh, this is, yeah, this is kind of a, a surprisingly difficult uh, list to put together, but I guess just to list them off, I guess. Uh, so my number five is uh, Makoto from Street Fighter Three. Oh. Uh, I like that she's like a basically just someone who got really good at karate and said like I can fight all these guys. And, uh, she's like a, a young kind of karate student, and I I like her spunk. I, I I didn't play much of her, but I really like watching her. Um, like the the, the matches uh, that she's in, I, I find her a really fun character to to see how she plays and stuff. Um, number four, I'm going to give to Dalsim. Uh, I like, I, I mean, I, the Street Fighter series is kind of like mired in a lot of stereotypes, which is, you know, a recurring issue, but I, I think they've done mostly right to like respect, uh, Dalsim's character, if maybe not the tradition behind him, but I, you know, I, I like a lot of his attacks. I like that he is very unique in that he is kind of one of the few defensive characters that doesn't rely on like fireballs and stuff, mm-hmm. even though he, he has them, but like, you know, he has one of the more original concepts and like his stretchy limbs and stuff. So I, I, I like him a lot. Um, my number three is Minot who actually premiered in street fighter five. Um, cause I, she, she again has a really interesting concept where she has this crystal ball, uh, that she can send out in the middle of a match, and a lot of her attacks are better when she's holding the crystal ball, but she can also deploy it. And I like her, yeah. you know, I like kind of her fortune telling shtick. She has a really cool uh, move set. Like, I actually recently fired up Street Fighter V uh, again for the first time since uh, the kind of the, the final wave of characters came out. And yeah, she has some really cool move sets that you can, or moves you can pull off in her move set. Yeah. Uh, number two, I think, is Jury. Uh, she. She was, who was recently announced for six. Uh, I, I'm not as into her Street Fighter Five rendition because I liked her in four a lot because she had, she had these like three separate fireballs and she had this dive kick um, that made her a little bit more of an all rounder. Whereas in five, she's more aggressive. But they're kind of uh, bringing that back with the dive kick in six. But I think her like aesthetic and like the fact that she's kind of like a, a leg based fighter uh, who uses a lot of kicks, I think, is is really. Uh, unique mm-hmm. and uh, uh, number one is uh, Ken who uh, I think has been like my main in, in a lot of Street Fighter games um, I just like that he has like the he's like the uh, Ryu with like a harder edge you know like his, <laughs> his, his uppercuts at fire uh, and he's kind of like you know this split like slick uh, surfer boy who is able to fight but also has a family you know um, 
And so he's able to make it work. I mean, obviously he's like very rich. And so he has the disposable income to also fight on the side. But uh, yeah, I, I've always thought Ken was cool. Yeah, uh, And he felt a little bit more interesting than Ryu, who was kind of like the like generic story, like world warrior who he's cool in his own right. But I, I always thought I was always a Ken guy growing up. I will also say that Ryu is not on my list. And despite maybe the coolest moment in Street Fighter history, aside from, you know, uh, anything competitive, I'm talking like in the games, is that that moment where in I think it's Super Turbo where he's just like the, the opening cutscene where he's just like bouncing in front of the camera and then like the lightning flashes and he does yeah. the Hadouken. Like that might be the coolest moment in any Street Fighter game. But he's not on my list either. Uh, so I'm going to start off with maybe one that people aren't expecting. Number five, Rashid from Street Fighter V. I think that his, his move set is really unique, but a lot of his moves are also based on the same quarter circle combinations that you get from like a Ryu or a Ken. So it's like I, I felt like I could pick up and play him, a completely new character, and he still felt somewhat familiar, even though he still had like a, a, a somewhat shallow learning curve, but still a learning curve nonetheless. Sure. You're going to notice a theme for the rest of my <laughs> characters, honestly. Uh, number four is Goken. And, okay. Uh, just because it's like kind of cool. It's like, all right, this is Ryu and Ken's mentor. Yeah, and he definitely had like a lot of interesting, like, what if we had a really weird version of the like the, the Ryu moveset, for sure. Yeah, and that leads into my longtime main, Ken Masters. Number three. Number three. Yeah. Ken is my number three. I, I play as him often. Um, and I think that, you know, he's just he's been all reliable for me over the years. Like maybe when I was a kid, I liked Ryu because like he was like the face of the franchise. But over the years, I migrated towards Ken and I, I think he's a, a cool character. But I think that my number two is even cooler, who is Chun-Li. I think that like, you know, yeah. she's as iconic as it gets in the franchise and it's it's hard to really top just like a badass uh i guess like what is she like a chinese police officer yeah strongest woman in the world is she yeah that, that well that's what her early bio said although uh, uh zarya from overwatch has a voice line that might dispute that and well <laughs> that's not on nintendo so that's out of the purview of this podcast <laughs> hey overwatch is on nintendo oh, yeah. oh you're right <laughs> and then number one, I think this might be kind of a, a, a cop out here, but Akuma. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's a cool. He's, evil. A, he's a lot. He's like evil. He's like literally before evil Ryu. He was like dark evil Ryu, right? He was like Ryu, but even cooler. And he was more powerful, evil. and he was like yeah. the corrupted version of like uh, what Goken was trying to like train. And it's just like, yeah, that's just a, a really cool character that like it hit around the same time that like. Like I was like, oh, Shadow the Hedgehog, that's super cool. Or Venom is a really yeah. awesome bad guy, and it's just like a dark version of like the main hero. Yeah, a dark version of the thing that I like is is the thing that people. are So it's inevitably cool, right? Towards. Yeah, he has <laughs> an air fireball. He's like uh, this, which felt really interesting. I, I do like that they have like a he has a little bit of like a human edge to him. So like he he. I, I think Gen in out the Alpha series was like the closest who got to beating Akuma before Ryu, mm-hmm. but uh, go uh, Akuma uh, was basically someone who would just murder. He had like the murderous instinct, uh, like the Satsu no Hado, but uh, he didn't kill Gen because he uh, suffered from a heart condition, mm. and so he said like, "This is not a fair fight, even though you almost beat me. So I'm not going to kill you because I want you to get stronger." So he does have that kind of like that. I think a lot of 
kids like of like he's evil but like he's he's almost like the evil version of tough but fair you know where it's like he's not just like craven and like you know evil and wants to destroy the world he just wants to fight anybody who gets in his way but there's kind of like this honor system that makes him even cooler yeah and like if you watched the i'm assuming you've seen like the the street fighter 2 anime movie yeah, Street Fighter, or, yeah, there's there's that one in the Street Fighter 2V or whatever I think it, it's called. Yeah, so the one that was on Netflix, I don't know if it's still there. Uh, very adult-themed, but oh, yeah. um, it's weird that, like, Akuma is just sitting there, like, in the town. Like, he's just, like, there's a, I don't know if you remember that, but, like, they enter this town and, like, Akuma's just kind of sitting off on the side of the road. And they never mention it. They never, like, he never shows up again. It was just kind of like an Easter egg they put in for fans. Yeah. I also like the idea of, of it just being like, yeah, he's an evil, like, in the demonic presence, but he's also just some guy. He's like, <laughs> he, he needs to go to town sometimes to get food. What? Like, he's, like, outside of him, like, being someone who, like, hunts for his own food or whatever, he just, he has to communicate with the world. So at some point, he has to be sitting on a bench. What's he going to do? Not eat? Yeah. So, Suriel, that leads us to the final segment of this show, the eShop Gem of the Week. It's an opportunity for you to come on here and shout out a game that we might not otherwise cover. What game do you want to give some shine to this week, Suriel? Uh, I'm going to shout out Treachery and Beatdown City, which is a, a very interesting, somewhat related to Street Fighter's kind of a beat-em-up history or brawler history. Um, in that it is an RPG where you go around different stages uh, in like a branching but fairly linear fashion but it is an rpg that uses um kind of side-scrolling beat-em-up mechanics where you're doing a lot of you're inputting combos basically by selecting them from a menu and then those apply kind of debuffs and you can use certain moves like grapples and and combo hits you know there's a system where these moves kind of flow into each other and benefit uh if you do them in the right order and it also has a lot of the like very 90s uh kind of send them ups of like san francisco culture and you know like a, a lot of the archetypes that you see in 90s games but kind of um doing its kind of parody act in a way that doesn't feel like abrasive or annoying which can sometimes feel is the case with a lot of like modern like parodies um i feel like the writing in this game actually finds a really solid line between making fun of stuff and not being really annoying Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's like it, it, it's basically like an RPG brawler, and it pulls that off really well. So if you're looking for something like that, or just it's pretty short. So if you're looking for something cheap and uh, short to kind of knock out in a week or two, uh, definitely give this a shot. So it's twenty dollars usually. I just checked the eShop. It is on sale for seven bucks right now. Uh, hopefully that yeah. sale's still going on by the time anybody listening to this who hears this and is like, oh, I want to pick that up. Hopefully it's still going on for that person because uh, that's a heck of a value right there. And it came out on Switch at least in 2020. So, uh, yeah, if that sounds interesting to you, like now's the time to pull the trigger on that for seven bucks that you could do a lot worse. Yeah, totally. Uh, but Suriel, this is one of the longest episodes of all things Nintendo <laughs> to date so i appreciate you sticking with me uh lending your expertise to the street fighter franchise and uh hopefully i'll have you back soon yeah no worries man it was fun and uh thank you so much to everyone for listening do me a favor if you haven't already throw all things nintendo a five-star review and hit that subscribe button and if you want to get any questions or comments in you can get in touch with me at all things nintendo at gameinformer.com or hit me up on twitter or instagram at brian pichet and then, of course, we're always hanging out on the Game Informer Community Discord, which is a perk for subscribing to our Twitch channel, even just for one month. Suriel, can you let the people know where they can find you on social media? 
Uh, they can find me at twitter.com slash Surreal Vasquez, uh, S-U-R-I-E-L. I'm sure, you know, Google or Google or Twitter will help you figure out the rest. Uh, I am currently uh, mostly consulting on games for now, but I'm also looking for any writing-oriented jobs in the game industry. So if you're, if you like my Street Fighter expertise or, you know, like me on this podcast and uh, need some writing done on your game or any consultations done, I'm definitely available. Just send me an email or DM and I'll be happy to help out however I can. And for several years, Surreal was the fighting game expert on uh, the Game Informer staff. So definitely vouch for him. And, uh, you know, you heard it here straight on this episode of how, how much he knows his stuff about uh, gaming and fighting games in particular. Like, So, yeah, definitely hit Surreal up if you are looking to bring a writer onto your staff or need somebody to do uh, some, some hired writing work for you. Um, but that is our show for this week. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Take care. We'll see you next time.